Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 25, Episode 18. Coming up on this show, we've got the ancestors of the war gods, the time slips at Radioactive Road, and the interdimensional Karens policing the time membrane. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. They're not necessarily Karens. They're more just a group of extraterrestrials, possibly interdimensionals, that are not happy with what humanity has done. So they're like mall cops. Yeah, kind of like more cops. They've kind of stopped, they're more police impersonators in a way. They think that they're tough. They think that they've, you know, stopped humanity before and they're going to stop us again. And essentially a whole group, according to this story that I'm going to go into on the show, a whole group of extraterrestrials are incredibly ticked off with humanity. Like really ticked off with humanity because we've done some bad things in the past. What have you been reading? So I've gone into the story of uh, Valerie... Yuvarov. Now, the reason why... Oh, you just did that on the plus show. You did the the spheres. Yeah, no, Yuvarov is huge. Like, Yuvarov has done so much work. He is a uh, a Russian researcher. I think he was a mathematician. And he said somewhere in the 1980s, apparently he attended a conference or something, and it completely opened his mind to the world of the paranormal. Now, a lot of Yuvarov stuff more focuses on uh, pyramid work and megaliths and that kind of stuff. But... When I was covering him on the Plus show earlier this week, we were talking about the cauldron spheres that are alleged to be in the Siberian tiger. That were associated with the Tunguska event. Right. So if you're not familiar with the story, join Plus and go back and listen to it. Otherwise, I'll link to it in the show notes so you can read it for yourself from his website. But the You'll sum it up later, right? Yeah, I'll I'll sum it up. Well, actually, what have you got coming up? And I'll go into that in a moment. Uh, I've been following on from our last show. We were talking about giants, obviously. But remember, we were talking about the island of Sardinia. And they had all those megalithic structures there. Oh, and the healing portal. Yeah, I, I mentioned that the locals... And many of them had these megalithic dolmens and, and structures on their property. They noticed strange light activity associated with them. There were all these tales from eyewitnesses talking about lights coming and hovering over the yeah. stone circles and then sometimes landing within the stone circles and vanishing. People described sitting on the stone circles or or near these stone monuments and feeling some strange yeah, some strange invigoration come over them or there was there were stories of healing. So this made me intrigued on the research that's done specifically on this that's been done in the 1970s and 1980s by Paul Devereaux and his team with the Dragon Project. Oh, isn't Devereaux the Earthlights guy? Well, I don't know if you can just call him the Earthlights no, guy. I, I know him from a lot of his research because he's <laughs> yeah. read that fantastic research into Earthlights. He's got he's got four or five books on Earth energies and Earthlight research yeah. uh, just on that one kind of topic, but... Places of Power is is a book I was going into today, which is from 1999, which is perhaps more technical. Yes. Uh, And I ended up finding Earthmind as well, communicating with the living world of Gaia, where he gives a nice summary of what they did with the Dragon Project, which had a lot of scientific research involved, where they were looking at things like magnetic fluctuations within you know, Avery and, and Stonehenge and other stone circles throughout Britain. Uh, they would look at radiation coming from the stones. And then there were all the the strange stories that we like to share on the, the show of eyewitnesses I- experiencing bizarre lights and weird apparitions. And portals uh, opening. Yes, and portals opening and, and psychic experiences and, and walking home and being followed by lights and having your pants burned. That's right. <laughs> so I've got a couple of, <laughs> couple of those coming up. Uh, and just some incredible stories that show... The, these anecdotes have some real scientific measurement behind them. There, yes. there is real kind of pulsations and fluctuations and strange energy signatures that have been picked up and recorded at these sites all around the world. Well, it's funny that you should be going into that because some of the things you're going to be talking about 
cross over a little bit with Yuvarov's work. Do they? Yeah, well, look, Yuvarov, uh, in a lot of his work, has gone into more of the ancient Earth kind of stuff. And as I said, you know, looking at these monoliths, uh, he focuses very much on pyramids. Uh, there's actually a, a Vimeo that I'll link to in the show notes so you can watch the entire presentation for yourself. The audio is quite bad, so be prepared for that. But it's him describing these pyramids that are found all throughout the world. And, of course, we know about the Bosnian pyramid, uh, the ones that alleged. are alleged Bosnian, Bosnian pyramid. pyramid. This, is a, this is a really important thing. When he's describing these pyramids, uh, they're all alleged pyramids. And he puts up some pretty fascinating photographs that do look like, yeah, I mean, even though it's a grass-covered hill, it has the geometry of a pyramid yeah. and it's quite large in a location where it's like, mm, could that have really formed naturally? It seems like there could be an element of human engineering which has gone into that. And as I was just kind of going through that, he gets into this wild story where he starts describing how these pyramids were used by the ancients and the ancients seem to possess a knowledge that has been lost to history that we don't possess any further. And what it was is that these pyramids would be, the geometry would be designed in a, in a particular way. And as a result, it would focus in earth energies. And with focusing in these earth energies, one thing that's been described by some researchers, and this is what we were talking about with Sardinia, is that these ancient cultures had an understanding of how to focus these earth energies for the use in healing. The other thing that they used for, allegedly, is what Yuvarov refers to as telepathic downloads. Now, yes, I know that that has a very new age uh, feel to it, but he claims that the ancients, that they would go into these pyramids once they were constructed correctly, you've got to use the right geometry, and they would stand at a certain location at a certain time of year. And this is why festivals would be conducted, because these festivals have like a ritualistic kind of connection to mm -hmm. whatever's being done inside the pyramid and the activation of this pyramid and this earth energy. And they would receive telepathic connections and images. And something would come through from somewhere else we don't know, and would give them knowledge and information. So when we hear stories about these, like the Dogon tribe, that had an understanding of where these, you know, constellations were, he's not saying that they're, you know, a good example, but you have got these ancient cultures that have an understanding of astronomy and just information that they shouldn't have, they shouldn't have access to, and yet somehow they've received it. And it's kind of like, well, had they received it through these telepathic connections mm. through these pyramids? Funnily enough, I do have stories of some researchers that were inside some of these structures and suddenly saw themselves in different locations, possibly past life connections. Really? So yeah, there is some strange uh, correlations. Right. And this is the thing. So um, because the audio was it was pretty bad on this one, I was like, you know what, I'm going to have to ditch this and, and, and go somewhere else. But this thing was sitting in the back of my mind and I was thinking where did he get this information? Like, is he just coming up with his own theories? Like, what is he basing it on that these ancient cultures had this knowledge? Leaked Soviet documents? No. The not, Paul Stonehill no, method? I love Paul Stonehill, so leave <laughs> Paul Stonehill alone. But no, it's not from that. Uh, it comes from a very unusual source, one that I really didn't expect in this circumstance. And after we did the, the research into the Terminator spheres, so... Just to refresh your memory on that, if you're a Plus subscriber, just hold on for 30 seconds. Essentially what it is is that there are these folkloric tales and even modern legends of there being these cauldron-like spheres that are very, very large, like a, the size of a garage kind of thing, uh, that are made of this weird copper material that isn't copper that sit in the permafrost in the remote regions of the Siberian tiger and the wilderness, Siberian wilderness. And what the reports say is that people have seen these things activating and as they activate, they come up with some weird iron pillar out of the center of them and they fire what looks like ball lightning into the sky, leaving trails of smoke and then they move around. And allegedly, 
these things are some type of uh, ancient earth defense system yeah. that was put planetary there. Defense a system. planetary de- defense system that was put there by a very advanced ancient culture that uh, it's powered through earth energy somehow and every 700 years or so 6 or 700 years according to you know looking at the uh, what the records of the the sediment you can see that there's changes in the electromagnetics which suggests that there's been some type of explosion that's occurred in this location every time a comet comes flying in these things activate and blow them away and no one's ever taken any photographs of these no, no. one's ever studied them closely no one can find them we're just going off the word on of this Uvarov well, guy you who, were... throughout the next 40, 50 minutes, <laughs> you're going to give us very measured Look, stories from him. They're going to show how he's a very stable, very, logical, rational guy. Very measured. And in fact, like he's so measured that I'm going to be able to back him up with stories from people like the renowned researcher, Linda Moulton Howe. Oh, here we go. And Whitley Strieber. So there might be something to what he's saying. Look, I'm not entirely sure. And I must say, when I started looking into Uvarov himself, there's a real mess out there. Like, there's a whole heap of people that just don't like him. Uh, there's a lot of infighting that's going on, a lot of claims. And But then I looked at some of the people making the claims, and I was like, mm, you're a little bit crazy yourself. So, look, what I what I realized, though, and it was rather serendipitous, because I was going through this new book, Ben, that you recommended. It's called Making Contact, Prepare for the New Realities of Extraterrestrial Existence. It's by Alan Steinfield. And Alan has written, um, basically, he's given a Ford, he's written his own essay, but it's a collection of essays that describe some of the more extreme elements of the extraterrestrial or alleged extraterrestrial presence on Earth. And in it, there's a Ford, and the Ford is from George Norrie. And George Norrie makes this really great point. It's like, when you've been dealing with these topics for such a long time, it doesn't matter if you're in podcasting, radio, you've just been researching... When you're in this for a long time, yeah, you get plenty of people that will feed you garbage and you get some really wild, crazy stuff. But after a certain amount of time... I love the garbage. Oh, me too. Like, <laughs> it's the hot chaff. Like we, but, but in saying that, Ben, I think, and this is something that, you know, it's quite clear, is that I think after a while you can kind of tell when people are lying. Like, you can tell when people are lying. Oh, yeah. You can tell when people are making up a story for the most part unless they're a really good liar. And George points out that, look, in the past, people would laugh and snigger at these things and just dismiss everything. But that attitude has kind of changed. And of course, we can see even with the American government recently making some you know, announcements and saying, well, yeah, we don't know what these things are. The attitude has changed from sniggering about UFOs to, oh, maybe there is something to it. And so with that moving, the same thing has happened to all the more far-fetched stories that are out there as well. He says, it doesn't matter how far-fetched these stories may sound, there is always a chance to learn something new and consider unknown possibilities. This is including things such as other dimensions, teleportation, and other such matters. That's a very diplomatic way to look, write a forward for this it, guy's it, book. It, well, it is, because, <laughs> look, because the book does descend uh, in these essays into what could be the limits of believability, but so does Yuvarov. And But I thought, like, I agree with this. This is something that you and I have experienced. And the fact that you said, yeah, look, it's good entertainment, but also some of the most craziest stories out there sometimes seem to lead you in a new direction. Well, sometimes there's crazy stories that you just have no reference for. And I find there's things that I read five, six years ago that I just thought were so absurd and ridiculous, I didn't give them a second thought. And then, you know, years later, I'll be researching something else and I'll think back to that crazy story and go, hang on a tick. Is there something to that? Yeah. Yeah, it's like this big puzzle that starts being put together. So what is the puzzle? What have you got? Okay, so the puzzle is the history of humanity and why we are living as a species with amnesia, 
and why extraterrestrials are so interested in us. And it comes back to Yuvarov. And Yuvarov, at least in this time, his information did not come from uh, detailed, in-depth research, although he claims that he has done that. It didn't come from sources anywhere here on Earth. It came from the beings themselves. So where I started to look into Yuvarov stuff, his website is actually quite detailed. He has a large number of essays on there that he's published and done research. Uh, I also caught an interview that he uh, did with Clive, uh, sorry, Cliff Dunning. Uh, it was quite good. I mean, Cliff Dunning's stuff um, tends to focus more on like ancient Earth kind of stuff. He's quite good. But he must have got, I believe he must have had Yuvarov on his show to talk about pyramids. Because I think that's what it started off being about. <laughs> and Yuvarov just went into something else. And Yuvarov went down this crazy path of the extraterrestrial intelligence and how ultimately it does relate to pyramids, but py- pyramids in a past life. So let me start with Yuvarov. Yuvarov had done all this research and he's, he'd been heading into the Siberian wilderness for a long time, you know, trying to find these, for example, these spheres trying to look at the legends of the location, trying to speak to the locals and get their folkloric tales about what's been seen out there. And it's not just these cauldron spheres that have been seen. There's tales that come from Siberia of there being uh, biological robots apparently out there. Like some of the locals describe them as at first they look like they're human beings, but as you get closer, you see them moving and they're literally moving like a robot, doing the robot dance as they move along. Maybe they're just really cold. No, well, maybe that's what I thought as well. I'm like, maybe you're just freezing. But no, they've been somehow deployed there. Uh, doing what? I don't know. But it made me think maybe they're doing maintenance for the interplanetary defense system. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. But these are some of the crazy tales that have come from out there. He also says that uh, back in 2008, 2009, this is in June, he said Russia went through this UFO flap. It was insane. Like the entire the entirety of the country was besieged by these UFO sightings, not just sightings, but also UFO landings, humanoids that were being seen. The stories were crazy, but because it was coming from Russia, two things were happening. One is, for the most part, it was just being completely covered up and ignored. Or secondly, is that the locals, particularly in these remote regions, were so used to dealing with extraterrestrials, they claim, that they were just like, eh, okay, yeah, these things have been landing here for for centuries. Our, our ancestors know all about them. Why why should we care? That's my feeling about UFOs in general. <laughs> well, that's the problem. I mean, once you see a light in the sky, you've, you know, you've seen them all, haven't you? So um, Yuvarov said that, look, around this time, he headed out to the remote Siberian location to try and speak to people. And, you know, he's like, is this truthful fantasy? And one of the earliest things he says is like, well, look, I'm really good at analyzing these eyewitnesses because... I psychically analyze them with my skills. I was like, oh, well, oh, hang on. You're psychically analyzing them? So when I dug deeper into Yuvarov, Yuvarov, like many researchers that, you know, or people that are in this field. Now, again, I'm not saying that I necessarily believe the story that he's saying, but at the same time, there does appear to be this trend of people that get into this field that have had childhood experiences. And, and had, have extrasensory abilities. And have extrasensory abilities, exactly. Which is why sometimes it's like the chicken and the egg scenario is that, well, did their extrasensory abilities allow them to see extraterrestrials or allow them to light up somehow? And then that's how they got their attention? Or is it the other way around? Is it the extraterrestrials conveyed these powers or abilities to them? I don't know. But he says, look, this is how I can go out to these locations. And I can speak to eyewitnesses and I can analyze. And he's like, yeah. There are people out there that are just making up stories, making up fantasy. But he says there are other people out there that are telling the truth. They're salt of the earth people. They're people that have lived here for a long time. They've lived here for generations. Their families have lived here for generations. 
they're telling me what I believe is the truth. And he says, I even met people who had met with these extraterrestrials. And he says, look, you know, it's not hard, though. To Where have, is this in Russia, sorry? This is in Siberia. This is in the remote tigers and with the very you know, distant, freezing locations. And he says, look, it's not actually hard to have uh, experiences out there because he says in these places, they're so remote that the UFOs don't even bother hiding themselves. And I was like, okay, that's you know, a new kind of take on, on what's happening here. He says, look, um, the aliens are basically the ones that are hanging around in this region they're high level human beings. So he doesn't give the exact details, but all he says is that the reason why he got this knowledge is because he said around 30 years ago, when he was out in the tiger, when he was in Siberia, he said one of these beings met him and explained everything to him. I was like, okay, well now I'm in, you know, I, I want to know. And apparently he just looks like a, just a normal human being, maybe a little bit taller, maybe a more Nordic style looking human being but they're extraterrestrials, and they start giving this information over to Yuvarov. Now, Yuvarov also says, oh, yeah, and then after I, uh, I, I met this guy, you know, only recently I've had greys that just came to my flat in St. Petersburg. I'm like, <laughs> well, they came what? for tea? Or? Yeah, I'm like, I just get this image. <laughs> Do they come up to some sad former Soviet apartment building and knock on the door? And what happened? This, this alien that gave him this knowledge, does he give any description of how the meeting took place? No. How they made contact? No. What it looked like? So all it was is that he was in the region at the time doing the research and because he was asking around, it got the attention of these beings. Now, he does say in his other essays that he's had interactions with these things as a child, so I don't know if it was almost like... Um, he Channeling or something? Look, I got that feeling as well, but he said it wasn't. He said he was there. He, physical meeting. A physical meeting, but he says while he was having this physical meeting, what this being did is he said he was just standing across from me. But at the same time, suddenly there was a screen between the two of us. It was this transparent screen. And he said, on this transparent screen, at the same time as I could see him, I could see everything that was forming on the screen before me. And he says... Is this- it to protect from COVID? <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it was something else. It was uh, some type of view screen for him to be able to see, right. uh, convey... Transparent giant iPad. Yeah, exactly. You know, convey the history of, of what you know, human beings are doing. Now, Yuvarov is quite convinced that 99%, 99.9% of UFO stories and uh, interactions with ETs that you hear are garbage. And the reason why he says that is because the narrative we're being told is not what this being conveyed to him. He said this being conveyed a very, very different story. And it is a very different story. And you get this impression that I must say with the, the current kind of narrative that we have, whether it's in popular culture or in the stories, the modern stories, the modern folklore of UFO abduction, it really is always, oh, the poor human beings, we're being taken. <laughs> oh, we're so bad. Oh. Why <laughs> using the whining voice? It is bad. It might not be. It might be karma, according to this being. Right. According to what we have to stop for a moment and think, hang on a second, what have we done to cause this? Are we simply just cattle? Or is there something that we've done in the past? And this extraterrestrial is like, absolutely, you guys have done something. Humanity has done something terrible, and you're being punished for it. So one thing that he gets from this being is this being, uh, he basically throws up this screen, and it's an image of our galaxy, because Yuvarov says to him, okay, where are you guys from? (laughs) And apparently this being is like, oh, yeah, well, we're like uh, kind of over here. Just like throws his hand, just pointing at a sector of the galaxy, which is our sector of the galaxy but doesn't elaborate any further. doesn't give any many details. 
And you can tell that Yuvarov is like, why is this guy being so apprehensive? Or, why, or not apprehensive, why is he being evasive? Why is he not answering the question? It's like, look, okay, we're the time membrane highway police. And Yuvarov, <laughs> like, what? Both Yuvarov, and I can imagine, like, this is imagine how he's going, and this is how I felt. I'm like, yeah, what? <laughs> They're like, time cops. Jean-Claude Van Damme? Well, no. Then is there two of them? Th- well, we don't know how many there are. I'm thinking this is getting into Rick and Morty grounds as well. Like, is there something going on here? Like, wh- what is this? And he says that, look, what, what this is, is that when you make any, and this is how Yuvarov explains it, when you, as a human being, make any kind of astral travel or even telepathically uh, connect with someone else, you're doing it in something that the extraterrestrials or these beings, these interdimensional extraterrestrial, what do you want to call them, these beings refer to as the field of time. Now, this is something that I was talking about on a show ages ago. Remember how I was talking about time? You know, and there's like... Well, the, tell me specifically when. Yeah, well, yeah. Because you've done like a billion shows no, but on time. Remember how like, is that, there's that joke, like it's the woman that plays, uh, she does that new British show, Mandy, and she does that skit where she's like, time oh, yeah. is literally all around us. And I said exactly the well, same thing, right? She's interviewing someone from Greenwich. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But what, what it was, even though that was the joke, like what it was is that from when I was doing that show, I was referring to time actually being a physical substance. It's a physical substance that in other dimensions can be manipulated, can be utilized. And that's exactly what these beings do, is that time is a physical substance. It creates a field. Uh, Yuvarov describes it being composed of this energetic channels and he says, and with these channels, they manifest in anomalous zones. So where you have anomalous zones occurring throughout the world, you have weird stuff taking place. So what it could be, it's like time, this time membrane, it's like a physical substance which is overlaid between our dimension and the next. And there's perforations in it. And these seem to be natural perforations. And this is where things can pop through. So this is why you've got like what John Keel describes as window areas, where all of a sudden you'll have these weird beings showing up in these particular locations, and they show up in this location over and over again. Another location, of course, is the Bermuda Triangle. Things disappear. Things appear. People have weird experiences. It's because this is one of these perforation zones that's connected to this weird time membrane. And what these extraterrestrial interdimensional beings do is that they act as the highway patrol, and they move around and they make sure that the holes that are created are never too big to allow pissed-off alien species to get through. So they're kind of protecting us. But, see, this is what I don't understand. They're just like customs are, agents. Are they, but they're not even real police. Look, they're, they're kind of <laughs> teaching us. Apparently, they're teaching us some kind of lesson. But it's never revealed to Yuvarov, or he doesn't reveal it, as to why they're doing it. Are they that altruistic that they're just like, oh, we're just here to help out humanity. We're just going to stop it. Or is there another reason for it? Because what is conveyed is that it started all the way back in 1947. He says what happens in 1947, of course, we know, was the Roswell crash. And he says in this time, you know, in this, at 1947, there was this one civilization. There's so many of them. There's many civilizations. Some are really good. Some are really bad. And he says there was this one civilization that tried to make a transition. They tried to forcibly break the time membrane and transition into our dimension, transition into Earth. And they planned to come here, but they crashed. They stopped because it was stopped allegedly by these beings. The time cops stopped them. (laughs) Apparently, the time cops came along. Did they arrest them? No, the time (laughs) cops came along and saw what they were doing 
and they, he said healed, but healed is the wrong word. They closed this rip in the time membrane that these pissed off ETs had finally made their you know, mm. ability to, to, to permeate and get through. But a few of them got through. And that were, those are the ones that were inside this Roswell craft. And because they were somehow attacked, fell to the earth. And we know what happens with the Roswell story after that. But Yuvarov actually asked more questions. He's like, well, you know, um, hang on, why? Like, why are these ETs mad? What are they trying to do? And you can tell it's building up. Like, it's building up to something that I can't quite put my finger on yet. But he says, look, you know, these things are trying to create biological robots. They can't actually do it. And I'm like, as soon as I hear that, I'm like, well, Yuvarov was saying that people in the Tiger have been seeing what appear to be biological robots. And this being is saying to Yuvarov, it's like, no, they, they can't create... They can't create them themselves, biological robots. So they abduct people and use them for that. And what happens is, is that many, many, many centuries ago, they attacked a planet called Stura. Stura. Stura, right? Sounds rather Russian. Does sound rather <laughs> Russian, doesn't it? I was like, okay, or German perhaps. Uh, but what these things, these beings did, these evil aliens apparently, they attacked Stura. Now, according to Yuvarov and the information that was relayed to him or conveyed to him, I'm sorry, was that uh, this planet was like a 2,600 times the size of Earth. So massive, like absolutely massive planet. It's free real estate. Yeah. <laughs> and as they're attacking this massive planet, they uh, attacked for eight hours. And the people on this planet gave a good fight. But then as they fought back, they abducted two million people from this planet. They took them away. Two million people. Two million people from the planet. When they got them, apparently they did something to their foreheads and their third eye, accessing it, and turned them into biological robots. Oh. Right? So, like, mm, okay. Now, he just interjects through this. <laughs> what the fuck is going on, dude? I, I know. <laughs> With this story. I know. I'm like, where am I? What, what's happening here? And he just throws in. He interjects. He's like, oh, by the way, uh, this being that I'm talking to, he tells me that he's a thousand years old, but he only looks like he's 35. <laughs> I'm like, is that one of the side? Is that a perk of being a time cop? That you're outside of the space-time continuum? Well, you are. You're, you're outside of time. Why would you age? Right. Yeah, well, that's probably what happened. So, yeah, when they tried to break through uh, with the 1947 invasion, these, this is what happens, right? So whatever crashed here on Earth, they were those robots that were abducted, that were abducted from, from that giant planet. That's right. That and were controlled by the evil aliens. Are they the Greys? No, they're not the And that's really important, right? They're not the Greys. They're, they're something else. And I'll get back to that because this is important because we're questioning, well, why? Like, why are they so pissed off? Why are they wanting to permeate this time membrane and come here? Don't they have enough space on their own side? Well, their, their planet's crap. Well, no, it's, it's not even that. It's about revenge. It's about revenge because they're ticked off at humanity. But I won't tell you why. I'll have to give you the, the big reveal later on. But <laughs> apparently on this screen, then up pops the screen. And this scene starts playing for Yuvarov. And Yuvarov was like, oh, my God, it's Star Wars. I'm like, oh, God, okay. But he said that... They look like stormtroopers. They were, but they're not stormtroopers, as in the traditional sense. But they're all wearing these very tight white uniforms, these technical kind of suits, like the allegations of what we've heard has come from Roswell. So he's like, "Oh, it kind of, it kind of matches up." Now he says, um, "When these beings, the good beings, close the damage in this membrane and stop them from invading, at the same time, uh, there was some something that went wrong in this process as these evil beings were trying to penetrate through." And they smashed into the Bermuda Triangle. And this is what created one of the, the problems. In, now, of course, things have been disappearing in the Bermuda Triangle for a long time, but that's because it's a permeable area. But something went wrong, and because it permeated, 
it brought down an aircraft. Now, Yuvarov claims that this is how he can prove that this guy was real and this interaction took place. For me, it doesn't prove it at all. Like Yuvarov could have looked it up. He claims that a plane went down at precisely the time that this membrane was closed by these beings, these good beings. Now, this being says, look, on this aircraft, it was an aircraft that was flying from uh, Europe to America. There were 25 passengers on board. It crashed because when they did something with this time membrane, it caused the engines to shut down. But they saved an 11-month-old child on the plane. And, you know, Yuvarov apparently says to him, he's like, what's, what's the child's name? And apparently this being is like, Elizabeth Nabel is her earth name. And so Yuvarov's like, oh, okay, well, I can use this. And apparently he goes and looks it up. Apparently he goes and finds a plane that disappeared in 1947 around that time and finds the passenger manifest and looks it up and says, oh, there's an Elizabeth Nabel on that passenger manifest, so therefore this being was telling the truth. Is this just some guy he met at a bar? Because he never <laughs> explains where this took place, this meeting. Did, did this just happen in... No, what I'm inferring is that it's like it's definitely in Siberia. It's definitely in a freezing cold location. And I just get this image of him standing outside in the tundra, just being like <laughs> having a conversation with a tree. Like I just, I, I don't know. And so he also claims that on the screen, then they flash up this girl, right, that was saved from this plane that crashed. And apparently they took her back to their planet, which again, they're not telling us where that planet is. Yeah. And even though she's supposed to be 60 years old now, she still looks like she's a teenager. Why Why would he need to be have this Bermuda Triangle story verified, right? Why would that be verification when he's literally staring at a alien technology screen that has manifested in the air? Wouldn't that be confirmation well, for you that the person yeah, you're it, talking to is an alien? Absolutely, but he's saying it's almost like for his argument so that he can say, well, look, I got this Okay, so we can look but, it up. And yeah, go, okay. But the thing is, right, see, this just it's just a logical fallacy because he could have looked it up at any time and made up that of story. Course, of course. The only way it would be true is that if he had somehow said the name, had somehow documented the name well before he had any ability to access that information. But there's no way that you can do that. There's no way you can prove it. So I, I don't think that proves anything. Um, but anyway, like, moving on. So this is where we start getting to the agenda of, of what possibly went wrong here. And he says, as he's sitting there and he's or standing there and talking to this being, he's like, human beings are special. And this is something that you and I have always said, Ben, like with these extraterrestrials, it must be about us. Like, why do they keep on coming here? Why do they keep on messing with our psychology? Why do they keep on experimenting on us? There has to be something about us. And this being confirms this. He's like, yes, there's something very special about humans. In your population, now, I mean, there was a lot more of you in the past, but he said 3 to 7% of the human population have very powerful genetic capabilities. And it's like, okay, well, that's, that's intriguing. So, you know, perhaps elaborate on these genetic capabilities. And Yuvarov just dives immediately into this, this war of the gods that allegedly happened or started 18,000 years ago. And it comes down to these genetic capabilities that human beings had 18,000 years ago, which caused such destruction that has now resulted in the time that we live in with extraterrestrials hell-bent on breaking the time barrier and getting down to Earth. I'm going to explain a lot more after the break. You're listening to Mysterious Universe. Don't go away.
Welcome back to Mysterious Universe, and we're discussing uh, Valery Yuvarov and some of his really wild tales about uh, his interactions with extraterrestrials and the Siberian tiger. And uh, We're about to learn why humans are so hated in the galaxy. Yeah, very much so. So around, he said it was like eighteen to, to 14,000 years ago, uh, Earth was attacked by ET spacecraft. But when Earth was attacked by these ET spacecraft, apparently the craft were just shot down easily. Because apparently human beings with their extended or extraordinary genetic capabilities could fire laser beams out of their head telepathically. <laughs> and so apparently when these UFOs were hovering, this invasionary force was hovering over Earth. This was 14,000 years ago. 14, 18 to 14,000 years so ago. Around the time of Atlantis. Around the time of Atlantis, highly advanced human beings with advanced genetic capabilities stood outside, looked up at the UFOs, were like pew, pew and just shot down the UFOs. Like X-Men. Kind of like X-Men. Yeah, exactly, like X-Men. And so these uh, beings were so terrified about the capabilities of human beings, they didn't realise that human beings had these uh, telepathic capabilities, that they had to go about developing shield technology to prevent them from from their UFOs from being shot down by human beings. And as a result of this, these beings were like, look, this is so serious, even with the development of these temporal shield technologies, whatever they are, we're not going to play human. We're not going to play games with human beings. Now it's not said right. I think this invading force is, or at least this guy he's talking to, is one of the people that was involved with this invading force. This is the feeling that I get from what's being described because he keeps the same up, race. It's the same race. He can't be fourteen thousand years old. He's not, but apparently some of them are. Like apparently some of them. And this is where I'm like, ah, uh, now it's starting to become clear. Okay. So this group so of they realized they couldn't destroy human beings through technology alone. Exactly. Is that when they seeded uh, dinosaur porn into society to <laughs> slowly degrade the Atlanteans and make them degenerate? <laughs> Do you know how many people linked me to dinosaur porn after that? Thank you so much. Because that, that is how you destabilize society. Get Atlanteans addicted to dinosaur pornography. <laughs> Rots their brains. That's yeah, yeah. That civilization just collapses, and then before you know it, your entire city is below the way. It does. Well, no, not quite. Right. So. They, it's almost like this is why they started becoming fascinated with human beings because human beings apparently had come from somewhere else. Around this time as well, this is where we had the War of the Gods. So he says, look, the reason also, and this is what this being says to Yuvarov, he says, look at Soviet society or look at Russian society for an example. He says, back in the 1920s when the Soviet re- or when the revolution happened, you guys were eating each other. Skip forward 40 years and you're going into space. Every other civilization that we've dealt with has taken thousands of years to make those leaps, to move from, from this level. There's something very special about human beings and that's why we're interested in helping you. Now, then Yuvarov says, well, tell me more about this war of the gods. Like, what is the war of the gods? And he says, look, I'm going to level with you. Many people that exist on earth now have had previous lives, many of them. Their previous lives were actually living on Mars and a planet called Maldek. Oh, and Maldek was the ast- was where the asteroid belt is today. That's it was right. Destroyed. It was yeah. destroyed, right? It was destroyed. Because what happened was, is that these people that lived on Maldek and Mars 18,000 years ago started a war that became known amongst the extraterrestrial species and interdimensional species as the War of Gods. And this is why now... In folklore and in, in religion and you know other in history, uh, history uh, or historical texts, Mars is known as the god of war. 
that's what's associated with it. And it's because this civilization just started invading and attacking everything in the sector. They were us. Apparently, they were human beings. Apparently, they were like a, a proto-human being, but very advanced. And we were like, you know what? <laughs> We've got enough technology. We're powerful enough. We're just going to conquer the galaxy. I kind of imagine it's like the Empire from Star Wars. Yeah. Like, literally, <laughs> this seems to be what he's describing, is that we go and we start just decimating everything. And apparently, we were so successful that we just wiped out thousands of civilizations. Thousands of civilizations were eradicated. Uh, few hardly survived but there were a few that, that survived. And again, we're still looking at this view screen. And Yuvarov says, as he's talking to this being, the view screen just suddenly flashes up this picture of what appears to be like a midget Eleanor Roosevelt. It's like <laughs> this 80 centimeter tall, extremely unpleasant looking person, right? Like it's human, but it's been beat with an ugly stick. Like it's just, it's not good, right? It's like a, uh, one of those, those little guys that have been attacked by a crane. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's a what pygmy. I thought. I thought, are we going down the path of pygmies here? Like, pygmy. where are we going with? No, they're human beings. They're well, form- pygmies are human beings. What kind of statement is that? <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with okay, you? Okay, no, that's a good point, right? That's a good point. They're they're former human beings, but they were um, they weren't exactly human beings. They were apparently there's like this lineage of where humanity thousands of years ago or the equivalent of humanity had kind of spread out throughout the galaxy. Mm-hmm. And so when the humans that were now us, the species of humans that are us, were on Mars and this other planet and were attacking everywhere, what we used was our highly advanced alleged genetic capabilities. And not only can we shoot UFOs down at 50 paces without even looking, we also can change the genetic code inside people. And apparently what we did is we went to this planet and just fired weird things at the people and turned them from very handsome Nordic-looking people into dwarves. <laughs> what the hell? Into ugly, ugly dwarves. Oh, my God. Just, that is a very cruel weapon. We just messed them up, right? And so now... It's called the manlet gun. Right. We did. We manlet them. Yeah. <laughs> so we manletted them and made God. them into these, these like short stature, just miserable beings, mm-hmm. right? Guess what they might be associated with? the group that went to the planet and abducted the humans, the biological robots, and now are trying to penetrate back into Earth. They want revenge. They want revenge. They're extremely you know, at the start of this show, with humanity. I was doubting this Yuvarov guy, but I cannot <laughs> fault his logic at this stage. So apparently we, uh, like after this happened, we have this uh, massive energetic influence. And this is where apparently, we don't know exactly what happens from this, but the tide turned in the war. And there was just a massive disaster that took place. Even though we'd wiped out all these civilizations, something terrible had happened, which is rightly so, because apparently we were quite bad and so many of us were killed off. But guess what happened? We reincarnated on Earth. But we are now a species with amnesia. We can't recall any of this that took place. There, are, there is, if you look into biblical texts and ancient texts, some reference to these things, but it's all very abstract. If I strain really, 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 really hard, can I get one of those laser beams to come out of my third eye? <laughs> I no, mean, really because, hard. Because, okay, so that's actually a, that's a really, really good question. So um, I'll skip forward to what this being says. He says, look, we had to do two things to human beings. We had to. So they've apparently these time cops, these time membrane interdimensional, inter-extraterrestrial beings have created a, two fields. One field is to 
uh, suppress these genetic capabilities, these X-Men capabilities that human beings have. So that's why we've lost it. But we still have them apparently coming through occasionally. And this is why we see, you know, just throughout history, people that seem to have X-ray vision or telepathic abilities or pyrokinetic abilities, kinetic abilities, telekinetic abilities, all that kind of stuff that seems to just pop up occasionally. And it's really rare and it's paranormal, but it's actually not. We are all capable of it. But according to this being, we have all been suppressed. There is some field on earth that prevents us from having these capabilities because if we, um, if we have these abilities removed from us, we are already a warlike race and we will suddenly go out and start attacking people. And the other thing, well, when I say people, other extraterrestrial civilizations, apparently we're quite aggressive. The next thing he says is that the second field that they've generated forces us to forget and have any knowledge of what took place. And I'm like, okay, I'm willing to entertain that. So why then are you telling a random Russian guy (laughs) in the middle of the wilderness in a freezing cold tundra? Why are you telling this guy this? But maybe it's because they're trying to convey information to some people. I don't know. Um, He then interjects with this crazy kind of offsetting story where he's describing, it's like, well, you know how you hear stories like Ivan Sanderson did some great research into the under um, USOs, you know, un, uh, unidentified submerged objects. And he's like, well, look, um, and this being says to him, yeah, your, your Russian Navy and your uh, US Navy, you know, they've seen these weird craft moving at very high speeds in the depths of the sea. You know, they can, you know, go at 300 miles an hour and then they can dive for six miles and then fly out of the ocean like a rocket before diving again. Uh, that's not extraterrestrials. That's human beings that are about 5,000 years ahead of you. They are also connected to whoever left Mars. So apparently they're still around and there's some weird breakaway civilization where there's a secondary kind of war happening that we're not privy to. No further elaboration on that. Where is this? They're underwater. That's all. And this is where it ties in with Linda Moulton Howe later on, which I will get into. Um, But it was just this side note that was thrown in. But he says essentially what happens is they're living... And this is why it was explained to him. <sighs> Even though it's underwater and we see them occasionally, they're not in this dimension. It's in a parallel dimension that they're sharing with Earth. Their planet is our planet. Our planet is their planet. And he says that essentially what is going on with these beings is that they don't want anything to do with us apart from when the Nazis... And the Ananurbe, you know, that, that you know, SS cult or the you know, precursor to the SS, they found the entrance to the parallel dimension in the South Pole. <laughs> and when they did, this is where they got the information for their real craft. And so the USOs that we've heard of for so many years were also connected. With, they, they were the ones that gave the technology apparently to the Nazis to develop their real flying craft. It's all coming together. And I mean, it all makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, I can't, I mean, I think we can just close the book on this. I think it all makes... <laughs> yeah, yeah, different, definitely right. So again, I'm still... Into, like, look, it's a cr- completely crazy story. Like, it's so crazy. But I'm still... I'm wondering, like, if this is true, what is the motivation of this guy? I still don't understand. Like, they came to Earth... He's just trying to impress him well, with his intergalactic like, war stories. No, it's more than that. So they came to Earth and they attacked Earth. But we shot them down with our psychic lasers. And then they just gave up? No. He says, what's happened is, is that any open conflict with Earth is going to be extremely dangerous to them. That's why they've stopped this. Because they fear that in the next 50 years, 
because of our technological advancements. And this is why he mentioned to Yuvarov very early on about, hey, you know, you guys were eating each other during the communist revolution and now you're putting people into space. This is how fast you guys move. And your technology is rapidly advancing right now. If we don't do something about it, you guys will be back in space and you're going to be attacking people. We have no doubt about that. And the problem is once you leave Earth, that field that they've put in, it's all over. All of our genetic capabilities will come back. And humanity will then be going back through the karma of what we've done before. But will we get our, our laser beams? Back? Yeah, that's the whole point. Because the, once you're outside of I'm the okay Earth, with that. the field's gone. And I do admit when I see an alien, all I want to do is run my sword through their chest. <laughs> it's just an intrinsic drive I have. I don't know where it, it is, comes isn't from. Isn't it weird? Yeah, I don't know like either. I just want to lop their heads off. It's like it's somehow hardwired into our DNA. And I'm the same. Like I just want to, you know, Hitori Hanzo. I just like yeah. straight in. So I just want to go sense. Rambo on all of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he said on top of that, the other issue is so humanity now has a chance. Humanity has a chance, but any open contact, it wasn't just the conflict, any open contact with Earth will actually significantly affect our development. Whether positive or negative, it doesn't matter. Our development will be critically undermined if we have knowledge of any of this stuff. And I'm like, mm, is it? Or is it that you're just, you're going to try and attack us again and you're worried that we're going to get out of our cage? You know, this prison planet that, you know, some researchers claim that we allegedly live on. He says to Yuvarov, he's like, humanity has to fall to the bottom of hell. Humanity has to look up into the sky and we have to give up our warlike ways. And we don't want to do it. We do not want to do it. And within the next 50 or so years, if we don't do it, humanity is going to be another scourge upon at least the galaxy. And so Yuvarov then is like, oh, well then um, maybe you should probably intervene. Like maybe it's a better idea if you do kind of like contact. <laughs> and there's ET, which just spent, I don't know how long, but let's go with half an hour, explaining the importance of why it's critically important that human beings have no contact with extraterrestrials. He's like, oh yeah, we'll be here in the next 10 years. <laughs> yeah, we'll be here. We'll help you guys out. So he says, look, you know, go and look it up. The history of the war of God and, and what happened can be found in ancient texts. Just it's all inter- it. Yeah, look, it's all interpretive, right? Uh, but he says, look, the history books have been faked. Uh, if you look into Sumerian and Mayan, you know, language and into history, you can actually find the details of this war that took place. Um, and then he's like, <laughs> so then he kind of just stops. Yeah, like. Yeah, I, I had to ask that question, but it, it, it ends there with his connection with these extraterrestrials and this meeting that he had. And look, it all, I guess, from this... How does the meeting end? Does well, he teleport out? Does he none of that hop can, into a time portal? Or, no, it doesn't, it doesn't quite end there. That, Yuvarov needs to work on his exciting details. Well, look, the ins- exciting details come from a personal validation that apparently Yuvarov has while speaking with this being. So this being has just basically doomed him and told him all these horrible things that humanity's done and why we're going to be punished for all all the terrible things that have occurred. But at the same time, he's like, look, um, one way that human beings can, you know, basically overcome our warlike ways and, you know, look up to the sky and understand, he's kind of like saying spiritualism, but it's not entirely spiritualism. We need to visit the place of our former death. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm willing to entertain this. And he describes that human beings, once we understand, I guess, like a spiritual view that we are immortal in a sense, that we reincarnate, that we have karma, this will change things. And so he gives an example. He gives an example to Yuvarov by taking him to a location of his former death. And Yuvarov says he sees it all on the screen before him. He suddenly finds himself in the 16th century and he's dressed in Mayan apparel. 
And he's like, oh, I'm a Mayan priest in the Yucatan at the time of the Spanish invasion. Like, well, the, Spanish, the Spaniards coming in. He says, look, my brother was killed in the first battle. And what his job was is that he was building a pyramid, a download pyramid. Now, he doesn't say that, but that's what all this other research he's done for years later. Well, he was the foreman. He was the architect. Yeah, he was like the project manager. Okay. Well, the architect, you're right. He was like the architect of this pyramid. Now, uh, again, to validate his story, uh, Yuvarov says, look, I've never had any interest or knowledge of Mayan pyramids before, um, but somehow this is what I was being shown. And he says, at the time when the Spaniards had come in, Yuvarov in his previous existence was actually trying to conduct, to build a pyramid on one of these membrane locations, which is a higher level energy. And so (laughs) this is where it kind of crosses over to these beings that just seem to be messing with humanity and sending people on wild goose chases because this interdimensional time cop says to Yuvarov, okay, I'm going to give you a date. And the date is somewhere in September of 2006. I can't remember the exact date. He says, on this date, you have to go into the Yucatan. You have to go to deep, this location. Deep into the forest. Deep into the forest. By yourself, bring no supplies yeah. and come at night. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You have to go to a location where the energetic membrane on this date will be extremely thin. And in doing so, you will get the answers that you seek. So Yuvarov is like, uh, sure. Okay, fine. So he does. So he departs from this extraterrestrial being that's just hanging out in the wilderness and off he goes. <laughs> no, I don't, know, I don't know exactly. This is the thing. It's never conveyed exactly when this happened. Like he said that he started 30 years ago. So I don't know if this took place 30 years ago or if it's only happened. It must be 30 years. It must be decades ago because all of his research apparently has been influenced by this through the years. But he's reluctant to talk about it because obviously it does paint him as a complete nutter. Um, but he, well, when you would tell this to someone in the general public, they would probably perceive it that way. So he says, okay, so I go to this site. He actually goes there in 2006 and he says somehow he gets this, uh, telepathic influence as to his previous life and he sees what happens to him. He was building one of these pyramids, right? And he finds the location of this pyramid. He's like, he, he recognizes this town. I think it was in Nachi Kokom or somewhere like that. And he says he recognizes this town. He recognizes where he had been. And he stood in the place. Now, in this place, he says it's now the oldest church, and which has been in the, the oldest church, which has been in the area, you know, for, I don't know how many hundreds of years. But as he's standing there, he's like trying to, and he gets this vision. And the vision is the pyramid. And he doesn't know why. He's not knowing why he's standing at this church and why he can see this pyramid. He claims that he later finds out that he was set alight by the conquistadors. He was burnt at the stake. Um, so what, does he physically go to Guatemala or something and yeah. find this location? Yeah, he's at this location, right? And he's at this where the membrane is the thinnest. So it's allowing this information to come through to him. And he sees himself burnt at the location of this church, right? This church was built from the stones of the pyramid that he constructed. Oh. So for him, that's just like this validation of, of how it's like, yeah, this is all, this is all very real. And, um, he then is told by this being, like, once you've done that, you've got the information that you need. You then need to get into a taxi and go to the nearest pyramid complex. And when you go to this, this pyramid complex, you'll be able to access the energetic properties of them. So he does. He's like, he gets in. And apparently only three pyramids in the entirety of the area are working. And it's because they weren't built properly. Yeah. So in a previous life, others had tried to make them and then stuffed up. Because They're like it, McDonald's ice cream machines. 
Yeah. Just a good chance that it's going to be broken. Yeah, exactly. And give you salmonella. You know, it's like most of them weren't working because they were put on the wrong power locations or the wrong membrane locations, energetic locations, whatever you want to call them. Um, and also that apparently the geometry was wrong. And even if you're you know, minutely out, like even the most imprecise mm. degree out on this, it would wreck the geometry of the pyramid this and they wouldn't work. surprisingly similar to what I have coming up in my scientific segment. Oh, is it segment. really? Yeah. <laughs> right. There's an example of a, an ancient statue that uh, I, I think it had some Egyptian influence. I can't remember where it was located though. It obviously must have been near Egypt. Mm. And it, it had a reputation to, especially even going back to ancient Greek time, that you would go there in the morning and the statues would talk. Oh. And there was, the sound was described as a, a trumpet sound or, you know, some kind of uh, strange horn or tone that would be sounded. And it was a specific time of day every morning. But then someone in the third century, I think it was uh, some, some like, like Greek ruler, repaired the statues, wanted to fix them because they were crumbling a bit. And Did that ruined it, it totally stopped the function. Yeah. Of it. it completely broke it. Yeah, so if you've got a, a power pyramid, if it's slightly, you know, moved or modified over time, it stops working. Right. And so it's never actually said, but I think this is somehow where Yuvarov is describing how he now has come to acquire some of the information that he has, is that ultimately he went to one of these working pyramids and this is how he gained his... And as I said, you know, at the start of the show, I'm like, I don't know how he got this understanding of how these things worked. It seemed like this is all kind of somehow predestined, pre-planned to allow him to obtain this information from one of these sites, which has heavily influenced his research. So I was like, okay, I mean, that's that's intriguing. Um, it's certainly a way out there story. And I would like a little bit of validation. I would like to see if there are other researchers that have stories that match up. Where can I go? Oh, Linda Moulton Howe. What a great opportunity <laughs> that will be. So, and look, I've, as I said, I'm always, you know, I love Linda Moulton Howe. I think she's personally a really lovely person. I think, unfortunately, though, she gets pulled in by some loonies every now and again. Um, and this is one of those stories, perhaps. So in Making Contact, Preparing for the New Realities of Extraterrestrial Existence, Linda Moulton Howe writes this essay. And, you know, it's it, again, you know, another person who is heavily involved in ufological research who has had their own experiences. And she says all the way back in 1952, she says she was in a backyard and she was doing cartwheels around the house. And she said as she was doing cartwheels around the house, um, she was going for a tree or something. And as she went for this tree, she hung her legs over the tree and was swinging from this tree. And she says, as she was swinging from the tree, she says she doesn't know if it was the blood that was rushing to her head that somehow changed her perception or, or what happened. But she said the next thing that she knew was that she swung herself over and was standing looking up into the sky. And she said it was right there. She said there was this yellow white full moon that was rising right above the tree that she'd been swinging from. And she said she'd you know, seen plenty of full moons before, but this one just made a gasp at first sight. And she said she was staring at this beautiful round light. And she said as she was staring, all sound faded away. And she said the moon seemed to get closer and closer. And then like a, a jump scene in a movie, she said, I was there. She says, I was on the moon. I was the moon. I was inside the moon. And the impression that I got was that it's hollow and it's watching us. And then poof, she's back standing looking up at the moon. And she says she doesn't know what happened, but she got the impression that someone else was there. There was something else that was connected to the moon. So this is a very, you know, um, 
I she's guess. never shared that story before, by the way. That's the first time yeah, yeah. And she she's even, written about it. She says, look, the other thing that she got, not only did she get the impression that, look, the moon is hollow, there's someone watching and listening to Earth, she also got another knowing, this extraordinary knowing, and it's that she's not to talk about it. And she said this was 68 years ago, 69 years ago now. That, and she said this is the first time that she's written about this lunar revelation, as you just said, Ben. It's just another example of these researchers who have been in the field for a long time. Heavily they influenced. eventually reveal their early childhood story. Yeah, yep, heavily I can't wait to reveal mine. You're going to be blown away. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to wait till I'm 65. You actually have one? Dude, wait till you hear it. Oh, great. Well, then now I have to, have to wait the till socks you're 65. will fly off great. in shock. Great. So, um, you know, she references the work of, you know, a number of researchers. Bill Tompkins is, is one great example, you know, and she says, look, people like uh, Bill Tompkins, there was also Robert Wood who edited and published, you know, some other research. They've all made some pretty extraordinary claims about the moon. Like, you know, the moon is some type of station that was built outside of our galaxy and it was parked facing Earth and... You know, it's like this solar command center for handling situations in the galaxy. And in light of that, in light of Yuvarov's story today, I was kind of like, yeah, okay, that, that lines up a little bit. <laughs> There's a little bit of a line up there. I don't know if I necessarily believe it, but if you're going to look at the similarities in the stories, it kind of lines up. Um, you know, there's other references to it being that Earth itself is just a massive laboratory being used by possibly hundreds of different entities with hundreds of different agendas, but one of them is that they will not help or interfere with us in any way. We are just a laboratory down here supporting their agendas, and they biologically control us to live this ridiculously short lifespan when they can live from 300 to 3,000 years. He's, uh, and in fact, he writes, this is Tompkins, some insect aliens don't even die at all. So I was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> yes, there's no entropy. So I was just... And They're just trying to stop us from using our mind lasers. Yeah, well, look, she even says, she's like, look, Tompkins made this reference. Like, she actually had an interview with him back in uh, 2016. I think it was about roughly a year or so before he died. And he was 93 years old. And just like what Yuvarov was saying, Tompkins is like, there's actually a Star Wars. There is a mm -hmm. real Star Wars going on in the Milky Way galaxy. And it's between different intelligence agencies. It's between different intelligences themselves. Uh, but humanity knows about it. And their weapons include manipulations of gravity, minds, invisibility, and time. And Tompkins writes that World War II was an extraterrestrial war fought through human bodies because Adolf Hitler and the Nazis obtained the Vrilja. Do you not remember blueprint. who Tompkins is? Yeah, Bill Tompkins is the... Um, He's the sex space Lamborghini guy. That's right, yeah. He's the child prodigy who wrote a book, a tell-all book, sharing how he had designed a super secret space program fighter ships when he was a teenager that's right. for the NSA. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and the secret space and, program. And, look, and By the end of the book, he was having <laughs> sex with Lockheed, <laughs> Lockheed secretaries that's right, who were secretly blonde Pleiadians yeah. flying around in space Lamborghinis. That's right. Yeah, these and, tall, blonde, blue-eyed Aryans. This is what influenced, apparently, the Nazis. He's not the pinnacle of reliable no. information. No, he's not. And He's probably my greatest UFO researcher of all time because of those stories. <laughs> but... I don't trust a word he says. <laughs> <laughs> Look, and this is what I was saying about, you know, Paul Linda Moulton Howe. Like I said, I think she's, uh, especially with her strange harvest research, her cattle mutilation research, I think she's fantastic. Uh, and like I said, she's a really lovely person. But yeah, she's, you know, listening to the stories of some people that have uh, not the greatest amounts of credibility. And, you know, also what I start thinking is I'm like, well... Did Yuvarov just read Tompkins' work and just adapt his stuff to kind of coincide? Because No, you... Tompkins was pretty late to the game. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's Before true. he passed away, he just 
revealed all his books. Yeah, maybe it was just old and he was like, hey, I'm going to yeah, be dead soon. That's how you do it. You've got a, a year to live. You just reveal this inc- insane story and then you die so no one can question you about it. <laughs> That's the strategy. It's actually very genius. And of course, in a way, then you just live on because people keep on talking about your crazy (laughs) stories. It makes you immortal in a way. Um, And this is the thing. So Linda also references things like, you know, White Sands Missile Range. She said, look, a scientist from there told me back all the way in 1988 that uh, there was a lab physicist who had been to the Mars base a dozen times. And this Mars base was actually built by a group of grey extraterrestrials that were trying to help the United States and they uh, used Martian technology or extraterrestrial technology to, you know, fill Earth air into one of these tubes. So, I mean, there's some pretty crazy stories. That's that right. I, the, one of the lava tubes, and they pumped in air Earth from air. Earth. Yeah. And that was apparently enough to survive on yeah. Mars. Yeah, don't worry about, I don't know, pressure or water <laughs> yeah, or anything else. You know, like, just pump in some Earth air, it'll be fine. But skip forward to the end of the, 20, uh, the 20th century. And Linda says that, uh, you know, she was sitting in, in Baltimore Harbor in Maryland and uh, she'd been invited by a friend of hers. Uh, I think his name was Nick. And Nick had worked with this guy uh, who apparently had retired after, you know, 23 years or so of work for the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. And um, when she met up, this guy, Nick, had said, look, you really need to talk to this guy because he, you know, contracts uh, with the World Bank and essentially the World Bank is covering up the intelligence work by the DIA and filter, like all these weird kind of espionage stuff and and cover-up stuff. I didn't really pay too much attention to it. But the reason why I wanted to mention it to you is because Linda goes and has lunch with this guy. She sits down with her friend Nick and and this guy from the DIA. And the reason why it's, it's really important is because this guy from the DIA claims that they are, the American government, is more than aware that humanoid species are monitoring Earth. And he says, look, part of my work at the DIA was to monitor the worldwide barter system of Earth to keep track of extraterrestrial intelligence. And, and The worldwide barter system. The worldwide barter system. Which so is? Humans, us. They're bartering us. They're utilizing us, which comes back to the robots. So just stick with me, This right? is what, um, what's his name? Dodson described. Yes. That recent work that I covered where these strange aliens turned up to take his blood, they were disguised as policemen. Yes, that's right. And ultimately he learned that it was a a way that the Pleiadians trade human in human blood. Yeah. And human body parts. Yeah, it's 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 very creepy. It's a black market out there. Well, look, there is. And this is like Linda is obviously intrigued. And she says that when they were sitting having lunch, it was like this deck restaurant and there were like all these boats that were making a whole heap of noise. Uh, it was a Sunday morning or so, and, or Sunday lunchtime, and this DIA guy is like, yeah, come over, come over here with me. Come over here. Get a little bit closer, yeah, Linda. Closer. Exactly. Don't be shy. I won't bite. Yeah. And so they sit down on this concrete bench that's kind of on the sidewalk and there's all these noisy engines around and he kind of leans over. And I, like very- your, I like your leather boots, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> she does have style. I'll give her that. He leans over to her and he goes, look, I don't think the satellites can hear us through all the white noise. <laughs> so she's like, oh, okay, that's that's fine. So he says, look, my job has been to monitor and analyze the geopolitical and uh, territorial conflicts of three competing extraterrestrial biological civilizations that have been terraforming the planet and manipulating human DNA for over 270 million years, and our government has proof. <laughs> 
Sutherland just sitting there. Just is like, he head of that department or he's just an underling there? I, I, I don't is know. Is he in charge of all of that? I, just I, himself? I don't know what's going That's on That's his portfolio. But, uh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe he's just an underling. You're right. He just took over from the last guy <laughs> he's a couple like, of months ago. I don't know what the hell ago. I'm doing. <laughs> so he, yeah, of course, yeah, exactly. He just took over this, immediately goes to Linda Moulton Howe. He's like, well, here you go. Here it all is. And then he starts talking in these kind of riddle things and essentially... Without you know going into too much detail, I'll link to the book so you can read the interaction itself. But he says, look, you know, Linda, under the earth, you know, it's not just um, the continents; it's like underwater. Like there's so much more space, and if you go down into the Mariana Trench and dig through there, you will find these underground, like underwater facilities that are being uh, utilized by these species of extraterrestrials. So there's reptilians, there's greys, um, there's the Nordics. They're all down there utilizing humanity for whatever purpose that they want to. And they've been doing it for 270 million years. And um, he's like, and Linda says, oh, well, you know, what are they? He's like, look, you know, there's six to seven foot tall, as I said, blonde haired, blue eyed Nordic types. Um, there's the greys, but there's a couple of groups of greys. So you've got the normal greys with the V-shaped chin, and then you've got the greys that are known as the extraterrestrial biological entities, Ebens, that have got like this U-shaped kind of face and they actually hang out in the Himalayas they're inside the mountains in the Himalayas and then of course there are the reptilians that are hanging around underneath the the deserts of Mesopotamia so Linda's course, like yeah. oh great okay that, that that makes sense this is fantastic um but he starts explaining that what had happened was is that humanity being altered it was like uh the whole story of Adam and Eve it was like us making contact with these beings there was some genetic manipulation and all of a sudden, there was an explosion of knowledge that came through. But they're doing this because they want to utilize human beings. And the greys are frustrated because they can't go... Well, sorry, human beings can go to dimensions that they can't. So they want to utilize humans in this bartering system oh. to be able to get to go where they have to go. And that backs up what our uh, Russian yes. friends contact Uverall. was saying, that human yes. beings are special. Human, human beings, beings can go to higher dimensions. Yes. They have a connection to the divine that Correct. other entities, entities do not have. achieve, exactly. So, you know, he also says, look, government whistleblowers, uh, you know, humans have provided for centuries physical labor with, you know, surface matter. They've built, uh, built, you know, temples and pyramids and essentially have built communication and energy machines. And this is what these things are. Like what Yuvarov was describing with the pyramids for receiving information. It's all coming together. It's all coming together. The most the, the thing that I remember most from reading this interview with Linda Moulton Howe and these this DIA guy, wasn't there another person there with her? The friend, yeah, the friend, um, I can't remember his name now. Uh, Nick, Is sorry. It, yeah, the DIA guy reveals all these secrets and then Linda's basically like, well, I've heard this and I've heard that and I've heard this and I've heard that. And the DIA yeah. guy's just like, uh, I haven't heard that. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah so that you're right. Uh, she, in the end of that in exchange, you find out she knows more than the DIA guy. That comes. So I don't understand what the point of the meeting. No, was. I, I mean maybe the point of the meeting was just maybe this guy thought that he had like this big massive story, and Linda's <laughs> like, "Okay, tell me something new. Like, I already know more than you." What are you doing later? <laughs> you want to come see my Honda? <laughs> so, um, you know, and it's funny you should mention that because you're right. Where Linda alleges she got that information is that there were two guys that were apparently connected to Majestic 12 or MJ-12. And this was under Harry Truman, President Harry Truman's um, top secret mission to study the UFO phenomenon. And she doesn't want to give the name. She says, look, to honor their request for anonymity, 
uh, I combined their information into one voice, and I call this voice Sherman. That's right. And so she says that this is how she got the information about the Ebens, because the Ebens, which are these ticked-off subspecies of greys, they have a technology known as the Yellow Book, which got into the hands of MJ-12, so uh, Majestic 12. Somehow this Yellow Book, it has symbols that glow yellow, and these uh, three-dimensional images, like a hologram, like a Princess Leia hologram, she says, rises up out of the page. And in it is the history of the consequences of genetic manipulation of Earth and what their agenda is. It's like their big book of secrets. And, you know, Sherman said that apparently it all started in, of all locations, Bhutan. (laughs) All of it started in Bhutan. So they apparently altered human ET hybrids in in Bhutan. It's a good location to use because no one can really go there and check out the story. Yeah, that's true. That's a a good point, yeah. Um, And then they somehow sent these hybrids into uh, the Yucatan, and this is why you've got the Mayan civilization. The Mayan civilization came from an Eben genetic experiment. So it's like, okay, that ties in what with what Yuvarov was kind of describing with their knowledge of what's going on. And he says, listen to this. The Ebens have been here since at least the time of the dinosaurs. Uh, they've been collecting human species, they've been collecting species of dinosaurs, and have placed them in a big planetary uh, zoo on different planets. This was before an asteroid slammed into the Gulf of Mexico around 65 million years ago. Uh, the animal mutilations that are occurring are being performed by various aliens. We're allowing them, the Shermans are saying, the government allows them to conduct this because they're concerned that, well, if they don't allow, it to do, allow them to do it on animals, they'll start doing it on human beings. So then it, it really descends into absolute uh, madness, but it ties, this is the robots, right? So Sherman says that, well, actually, no, Linda R. She says, look, do the Ebens have, uh, you know, why are they doing this? Why are they going down and doing these mutilations? And Sherman just says, look, you have to understand these advanced civilizations. They have access to technology, which is beyond our comprehension, but they utilize robots and androids to do these things. It the all Ebens have created the androids to perform the cattle mutilations. It all lines up. The Ebens are controlling a big part of the operation on Earth, and we can't control anything that they do. Now, the reason, and it's always a classic, the reason why the Ebens have become more uh, aggressive and are showing themselves a little bit more is because as soon as human beings started testing atomic bombs, they got very, very concerned. And they made it very clear that they want all atomic bomb tests to be stopped that were above ground, and that's exactly what happened. Um, and then, of course, apparently, according to this, who's behind all of it, behind all of this? The mantoids, the insect beings that apparently live for thousands of years. Freaking mantoids. Always the mantoids. So I'll link to this book in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org so you can actually read some of these stories. So it really is like on the limit of yes. believability. But if you want a bit of fun, I like how you've proven the axiom today, the old axiom that two retarded stories make a logical story. (laughs) It's like two wrongs make a right. It really is. Well, it's like in mathematics. It's like two negatives make a positive. Exactly. That's exactly what this is. I could say universal mathematical law. So I actually go, yeah, I'm just going to go with this. This is what's happening. (laughs) Humanity are bastards. We've pissed off some extraterrestrial species that, by the way, tried to invade us. Yeah, exactly. Now we're <laughs> reaping what we sow. So I don't know. Look, I'm. Um, it, it it is fun to to cover some of these stories. I think. Did you read any of the other essays oh, in that book? Okay, so let's go into Whitley Strieber, <laughs> right? Okay, I really I like Whitley. Um, 
you know, also, again, you know, I just don't know what to think about this story. So the reason why this book is good is because there does appear to be a lot of people describing their first experiences. Yeah. You know, even the author, um, Alan Steinfeld, describes his experiences. Like, he had this experience... Oh, where he's, he's holding a deer. Oh, this, oh, no, you're right. So what happened was apparently he was referring to Love Bite. Remember that book that we covered about the extraterrestrials uh, playing Cupid yeah. and to you know get people to come together for their genetic experiments? Well, he claims that he was like starting to get into this field and he somehow hooked up with this woman and they hung around together. They never ended up ultimately being together, but they go for a drive. And then when they, they camp somewhere, I can't remember where it was. I think it might have been in the Yucatan. It must have been... It maybe some, it's not. It was, it was some like new age convergence festival. It yeah, it might have been. In, yeah, it might have been Arizona. Actually, it was. I think it might have yeah. been because he was describing yeah um how beautiful and iron filled the the mountains were. So that must be it. So yeah, I was wrong about that. But anyway, um, what's important is that he goes one night and they sleep in this van. They've got some combi van that they're sleeping in, and he wakes up in the morning and both of them hadn't moved, and both of them were like, "That's weird." Like that's and they had a weird feeling about it. It's like when you. What do you go, mean they hadn't moved? Like they were just lying they were lying in the same exactly position. the same position that they went to sleep, and they, it was somehow very obvious to them. Like, and I think that's a good point, right? I think you, you do roll around yeah, at night somehow, you toss and turn, the sheets get yeah. thrown about, and yeah, none of that, right? So he says that um, it was like thirty years or so that he didn't do anything about it, but they ended up getting into this field, and I mean he'd been in the field for a while, and he ultimately goes and has a regression. And when he has a regression, he has all these dreams, right? And in some of these dreams, he realizes that these aren't dreams. Like there's there's something else. There's something very odd. And whether it's physical or not, uh, it's almost like a an out-of-body abduction that takes place. But he gets this impression that a sperm is taken from him. And That's right. He doesn't give details. He just says he felt that sperm, sperm was taken from him. And he says a sperm as well. Like he's very just a single sperm. A single sperm. <laughs> I guess he doesn't all. say a single sperm. He says a sperm. <laughs> And that's, I guess that's all that's required, right? You can take just one! <laughs> yeah, so, but then he says, this isn't a dream. Like, he actually wakes up to find something furry, like, rubbing up against his leg. Mm. And I'm like, it's some weird, like, you know, grub or something? And he, like, sits up, and some beings come in, just from we don't know where, and hand him this, like, hybrid deer human yeah. and get him to try and hug it. It's hideous. It's hideous. And he's like rocking it back and forward and he's like, I don't yeah. feel... You know, it's like a baby foal mixed with a, a, a child. Yeah, he's trying to be connected to this thing. He's like, I'm not feeling the connection. I don't know what this thing is. And he later finds out through the regression... He said it had big black eyes too. Yeah, it did. So um, what had happened was one memory he had is that he... And this is how it all kind of triggered is that he um, saw, I think it was like four burns or four indents on the back of his leg. And he went to go and speak, and as a researcher, he went to go and speak to another abductee. And he hadn't thought of it, but this abductee goes, oh, that on the back of your leg, that's not a burn, that's a, a, an abduction scar. And he flips out and it takes him years until he has the regression. And when he has the regression, the ETs had come to them in the van and had somehow used some technology to freeze time mm. and, and it, take a single sperm and take a single sperm and that's where he had the abduction and then <laughs> one the hybridization swimmer. yeah one swimmer and you know he then describes this story that it was i can't it was at the uh i think it was the 2013 Stephen Bassett conference yes something like that and he said there Washington was Washington Press Club thing that's right yeah it was at that mock senate hearing thing yeah, yeah. and um not senate sorry congress thing and he said that um this one guy who had been associated with the technology, extraterrestrial technology, apparently pointed this device at a candle 
and the candle froze. Like it was a lit candle. Oh, yeah, that's right. And the candle froze. To show that it was manipula- manipulating time. Exactly. time. And of course, time, we come back to the guys we've been talking about with Uvarov. Back to the time cop. But then, so I mean, that's, that's a fascinating story, like really fascinating story about how someone goes through uh, coming to terms with being an abductee, even though he himself was a researcher. Uh, Alan kind of makes the point, and I think this is, it again, ties in with Uvarov. You know, Uvarov is saying, or he was told by this being, that, look, if if we make contact with extraterrestrial species, it's going to steal something from us. It's going to uh, critically uh, cause trouble for human beings. And, you know, um, Alan makes this point that it's like we're not meant to know. We're not supposed to have a knowledge of this. Uh, this is why they've developed these technologies, because they can basically pluck people out. And because time stopped, you don't make any memories and they can just put you, put you back and do what they have to do. And so this flows into Whitley Strieber's experience. And again, you know, Whitley Strieber uh, has a new kind of insight into his experiences and it starts to become more metaphysical. But essentially, um, you know, without giving away too much of his, his story, because I want you to, to read it, but he says that uh, his wife had died, Anne had died, and I think she'd been dead for about six months or so. And she'd had a near-death experience beforehand, so I get the impression that she wasn't too concerned about moving on to the next place. But he said he woke up in a panic one night because there was like something in the room. And, he, and when he woke up in this panic and he reached around and he flicked on the light and he had like a, a pain in his foot and he turns on the light and there's nothing there. And so he starts like Googling for gout to find out, you know, like if yeah. he's suffering from gout or something. And he's like, oh, the pain's gone. Okay, that's fine. Turns off the light, goes back to bed. Everything's fine. I can't understand actually how someone like Whitley Strieber, who had had those, what sounds like truly horrific experiences, how you'd ever sleep properly ever again. You know, like if you wake up in the middle of the night after you've had someone shove something up your backside, you're probably going to be a little bit, you know, concerned about it going forward. But he says the following night, he has, um, he wakes up to find that a hand has reached in underneath his shirt and had started pinching his nipple, like giving his, his nipple a good tweak, mm-hmm. and he leapt out of bed. Yeah, exactly. He leapt out of bed with his purple nurple and looking around, turns on the light, and there's nothing there until he realizes that it's like this more. He said in the 80s or whenever the events that took place to him for communion happened, he says that was physical. He says this is more of a, like a, a non-physical thing that's occurring to him. And he said that his, his dead wife had something to do with she the had visitors to, now. Yeah, she had something to do with it. And he said that this man uh, materialized in the room eventually. Like he couldn't see them. He said he would go out and meditate at night and he had this meditation room. And he says eventually this man materializes in the room and he's standing there over the bed and then apparently when he goes to touch him or something, the guy just dematerializes and disappears. He wasn't into that. Well, <laughs> I don't think that's what it was, but the the, uh, the beings keep on waking Whitley up every night by blowing on the back of his hand or blowing on the back of his head for some reason, and it, and it wakes him up and he, he does his things. And so How annoying. Oh, I know. I'm like, just, just leave me alone. leave me alone. My, my wife's dead. I've been you know, anally done by yeah. you guys. What more do you want from me? No one cares that you're from another dimension. Yeah. Yeah, but go live there. Go, yeah, but I don't know. <laughs> but what it is for for Whitley, like I, he seems to think. Look, these are his experiences, so I'm not going to cast my own biases on them. Um, but basically, the the argument that he makes, which ties all the way back to what Yuvarov has said, is that he gets the impression that these ETs say to him that if you woke up one of these when he woke up one night and this being was materializing at the end of his bed, he said the being looked away. And it was almost like it was being courteous so he wouldn't look into his eyes. And he said he worked out the reason for that is because if you look into the eyes of this thing, 
it potentially can be deadly because what it does is it rocks and destroys your ego. Mm. And he said, you know, there was a good example of a woman that he knew, and I, I can't recall, I'm sorry, off the top of my head, how he was connected to her. Um, but apparently the son had been having these experiences or something, and she saw one of these beings. And when she saw it, it affected her so badly that she needed to have a pacemaker installed. What? Like it had wrecked her up. Like it was, it was potentially deadly. It was like a very dangerous thing to take place. And Whitley says, because with these beings that seem to be interdimensional, extraterrestrial, we're not entirely sure, um, if you look into their eyes you essentially see everything. And what that means, you'll see your point of death and what it takes from you is it takes surprise. So the reason why we're here on Earth is because, and this is a very like Alan Watts kind of thing, that we're here to experience everything spontaneously. There's a spontaneity to it and it's how we respond to it and this is how we grow. So if we know what's coming, we can't spontaneously respond to the challenge which is given to us Mm. and so we can't be tested and we can't grow. And he says, by looking into the eyes of these things, that's exactly what that will do. It will take everything away. Uh, And then he starts getting into like basically the mirror universe. And he says that there's some knowledge that there's a mirror universe. And in this universe, everything runs backwards. And so when people die in this mirror universe, I've seen that movie. They're born here. And then it kind of moves back and (laughs) forth. Yeah. And it's this cyclic kind of, you know, matrix style thing of it just going over and over and over and over and over. Not really clear. Um, but like I kind of That's why we need to get our mind lasers back. Yeah, exactly. Because Look, if any alien tries to wake you up in the middle of the night, <laughs> you just blast you're them. Just like, <laughs> and they're dead. They just explode in the red mist. The only problem is getting the cleaners in the next day. That's true. How do you explain that? You just have to remodel. But yeah. it's worth it. It's I think it's worth it. Yeah. If you get woken up by someone blowing at the back of your head, <laughs> laser them. Or getting a purple nurple yeah, from an alien. Yeah, someone tweaking your nipple in the middle of the night. I mean, that's horrifying. I mean, I must say, the poor guy's had something shoved up his backside and yet getting your nipple pinched in the middle of the night, I think that's more terrifying. Yeah. Absolutely terrifying. So look, I'll link to that uh, and of course the Uvarol videos in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org. Make sure you check out Making Contact, preparing for the new realities of extraterrestrial existence. Some really great stories in there. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm convinced. I'm convinced now, Ben. I'll just, we'll just go with that. You don't sound convinced, Aaron. <laughs> well, I don't know why. You know, there's another book I'll send you your way. Uh, speaking of our connection to Mars, just came out today. Why do you send me these crazy things? Just because I know that you're gonna, it's going to be painful for you. Yeah. David Hatcher Childress. Oh, yeah, I like his stuff. Alien Intelligence and the Pathway to Mars. De- he details how exploratory probes sent to Mars in the 1970s triggered a plethora of anomalous events, particularly crop circles, and how these events are messages from ET intelligence to help us send a human mission to Mars. Okay, I'm in. Mm. Yep. All right. Mm. Look into that in a future show. Coming up soon. And in our plus extension, coming up in just a moment, I'm going to be going into Paul Devereaux's Earth Mind Communicating with the Living World of Gaia, but I'm mostly going to focus on these strange anomalous effects that stone uh, monuments have on human beings. Mm. Some of the experiences people have reported going into the stones, the magnetic anomalies, some of the strange radiation effects that are going on. Glowing. Weird glowing and hazes and mists and all sorts of bizarre time slips. That's coming up in our plus extension. Head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus for all the details. It's nine bucks a month, gets you access to the big extensions we do on these shows every single Friday. And if you sign up for our membership, you get access to an entirely exclusive plus season that comes out on Tuesdays as well. So you're getting uh, two shows a week if you're on plus and the, the big extensions we do on these Friday shows. 
And you also get a higher quality audio version of the show too. You get a higher bitrate feed, so you get the best audio quality we put out. Uh, an ad-free version of the show goes out to our Plus members as well, and you get discounts off digital products in our store when you're on Plus too. So again, check it out, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. Nine bucks a month, helps support your favourite show. That's a wrap for this free edition of MU. Thanks for listening. If you're on Plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break. For everyone else, we'll catch you next week. Welcome back to your Plus Extension. Great to have you with us. I just got a stack of Paul Devereaux books all at once. Like oh, great. Five of them came in. They're quite dense, some of them, though. I'm surprised yeah, that you got through them. He does repeat himself quite a bit, but I mean, that's understandable because they're years apart and I'm just trying to read them all at once. Yeah. But I, I'm glad I went into Earthmind because it does have this very, uh, I guess, easy to digest summary of what went on with the Dragon Project. So, I, mean, the, I was going to ask, by the way, is the Dragon Project, is he talking about dragon lines or is it something completely unrelated? It may stem from that. I'm, I'm not sure why they chose that name. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm not sure if it's still running as well because it was handed over to the Dragon Trust or the Dragon Project Trust. Oh, okay. And while it was running, any volunteers that would, would follow the protocol could investigate sites all around the world. So you had American volunteers looking at the Serpent Mound, for example, and I'm not sure what other locations were investigated, but the majority of the work was done at these megalithic sites in Britain. Right, yeah. Uh, and throughout the British Isles as well. So I've always been intrigued by what they discovered, but the problem with Devereux's books is that they were kind of harder for us to get that most of it's in paperback and... Yeah. I finally got this big order to come through. And this book, it, obviously, you can tell from the title, Communicating with the Living World of Gaia, he goes into uh, the connection, well, Lovelock's Gaia theory. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I'm not going to go into this today, but it ultimately gets into this concept that some of these megalithic sites might be a way to tap into this consciousness of the Earth. And, and communicate with it? Communicate. Mm. Just, just, I've heard things like that. What's what's the word I'm looking for? Commune, yeah, with the the mother goddess, right? But it's it's a very kind of metaphysical, uh, philosophical discussion. So I, I really wanted to focus on these weird goings ons in these these megalithic sites, these places of power. He calls them. Now, just a bit of history on the ancient science. He he points out correctly, I think, that early people, the our ancestors, either identified or created special places that they saw as being sacred. And they made them, or they saw that they were a different order from the rest of the landscape. He said it was a phenomenon that occurred throughout the world and sacred sites took many forms. And he's really correct. You can travel all around the world and find these sacred sites. But often many, for many cultures, it was just natural locations. Like we've got Uluru in Australia. Uh, you might have a spring or a cave or a mountain peak that is a, a, holy, a holy place, a special yep. place. Yep. 
Uh, and it's not just something that came from a, a religion or some folklore, some made-up story. It's because there's some tangible difference about that location. That people obviously have been able to feel for they've, a long time. They've detected it or experienced something there. And then he points out that obviously there's other sites where clearly there's been some kind of what he calls spiritual engineering going on. And what we call them today is the, the, the monuments. You know, the the Great Pyramid at Giza, mm-hmm. obvious example. Stonehenge, obvious example. But there's so many throughout Britain, there's so many stone sites that they really had this amazing opportunity to, to look at, at this serious scientific study because uh, there's just so many locations that you can access. So you're talking about him using actual scientific instrumentation. Yeah, I'll get into some of this uh, in a moment. He explains that traditional people use these places to contact the spirit world, to dream, to worship, he says, to be initiated or perhaps to be healed. But things changed with the Enlightenment in the 17th century. He said a different approach started to arise. There was this still interest in those sites, but it was an intellectual interest purely. The questions of who built them, how old were they, why were they built, were being studied. Great questions to ask, but the objects, they became objects of study instead of objects of use. People stopped using them. Mm. Right? Before the 17th century, before this uh, you know, Western empirical enlightenment, they, was, they were used by people. They had a function. Now, Devereux says this shift in our relationship with these uh, special places of power is, he, he calls it a consequence of the final veils of amnesia, that had fallen across the face of the former world. He says uh, scientific archaeology became more advanced, obviously, but somehow more removed mentally from the, the nature of these sites. Now, he said all wasn't lost because buried within folklore was this, like a, a memory, a residual sense of the special nature of these sacred places. Yeah, These old stories would talk about how the stones could heal how the stones could move or how the stones couldn't be counted. What does that mean? Like, well, it's, this, is, it's, this is within the folklore that... And they, they did this brilliantly in the latest Assassin's Creed game, the Vikings game. Remember I mentioned it a couple of episodes back? I can't remember what I was referring to. That's right. The uh, Was it the Piltdown Man or that big sand carving in the mountainside yes, yep. where they removed his penis from the video yeah, game? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's all sorts of great... Because the game's based in England. And I can't remember where it was meant to be, but there was this little side mission I found in the game. And you come across this guy who's ranting, right? He's just going crazy and he's saying, I can't count the stones, I can't count the stones, I can't count the stones, 27, there's 28, there's 29, I can't count the stones. Oh, and so you, this is a folkloric thing. You go and talk to this guy in the game and yeah, he's crazy, he's losing his mind and he's like, I can't, you can't count them, you can't count them, sometimes there's more, sometimes there's less. And you basically accept the mission and in the game you start counting the stones and he's like, go around, count them and so you walk around anti-clockwise and you actually have to physically try and count the stones. And the first time you do it, you get like 16 or something. And you're like, it's 16. He's like, count them again, count them again. So you run around this circle and you count the stones. This time you get 17. (laughs) And you talk to him, he's like, I told you, you can't count the stones. And you run around a third time and there's like 20 stones. So it drives people insane. They do it so well because as you're walking around, you can't see the circle change. Like it looks like nothing's happening to the circle. 
but your count is always different. They do it really, really well. And it's it stems from this folklore that the stones had powers that sometimes, you know, they, they would levitate at night. There's lots of local stories of the stones going down to the local river for a drink. Oh, that's cool. And then coming back in the morning. Uh, there's there's tons of stories of the stones being people and they've been like a king who's who's made some moral mistake and been turned into a stone by a witch. Some of the stones themselves are witches. They're alive. They can talk. They're prophets. All of this is just embedded in the folklore. And the the ancient mounds as well was another one he mentioned, how they contained secret treasures. They were the homes of fairies, elemental spirits. Uh, the sites would talk at certain times of the day. Fairy lights appeared. Spirits of the dead would float around as, as globes of light. There were all these legendary beliefs associated with these sites that never went away. And it, it, it kept it in our psyche that they're special. They possess magical, supernatural qualities. They were places of power. And this is why holding on to traditions is so important because they're more than just stories. They're more than just made up science fiction. They're, they're real truths. They're hidden truths of, of something tangible from our distant past yeah. that's been passed down. Well, I mean, as much as we were joking about what we were talking about from Uvarov, he makes a really valid point, or this being makes a really valid point about humanity being a species with amnesia. Yeah. We really are. And I think that's something, it was a Graham Hancock that describes humanity. Well, Devereaux says it multiple times in here as yeah. well, so I don't know who coined it first. <laughs> but it's true. They're absolutely right. He says people also recognize the awesome skill, obviously, that went into the construction. They wondered where this knowledge came from. Uh, and he describes how it became fashionable in the early years of the 20th century for psychometrists yep. to start visiting the sites. Fantastic. I love this idea. Yep. Psychometry being my favorite supernormal ability. Mm-hmm. And he says the consensus that came at, came back from these sensitives was that the old sites had been used in the ancient past for the magical concentration of cosmic forces, some kind of lost technology. Now, obviously, this was branded by mainstream archaeology as the lunatic fringe. Of course it has been. Obviously, yeah. right? So things started to change, though. Uh, the concept of ley lines was introduced by Alfred Watkins, who we recently spoke about on a show. Uh, by the 1960s, interest in ancient sites had really grown, but it had started to include all sorts of weird ancient aliens, ancient astronauts' ideas. It was just this big melting pot of, of weirdness. But there were revolutions going on in archaeology itself in the 1960s, he points out. The carbon-14 dating system... Do you remember that they they discovered that it was wrong? <laughs> like they realized in, in the mid 1960s that the system that they used with carbon 14 dating was askew and they had to recalibrate it. He he tells a story of how they used tree rings to try and recalibrate it, but, but the bottom line is they had to introduce new dating charts for all this dating that had been done in the past. And let me guess, did it push everything back? Yeah, everything yeah, was so later. much older than yeah. than people had first thought. Uh, places like Stonehenge, Newgrange, were centuries and centuries and centuries older. Whole archaeological theories about the spread of culture across Europe and the rest of the world had to be thrown out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like we got it wrong. Uh, also in 1967, there was the book from Alexander Tom, you know, the the former engineering expert from Oxford. He uh, was one of the first guys to do this meticulous research on stone circles in Britain and how they were laid out 
for astronomical observation. Yes. Again, another really important paradigm breaker that it's not just a bunch of cavemen going, oh, stone go here, stone go there. No, there's a reason for it. <laughs> it, it it's actually very uh, precise science. And the slowly the ancient monument builders, he says, began to be seen as being older and wiser than had been previously accepted by archaeologists. Now, he says there is there is now a return to these old sacred places of power. He says it's as if these points on the Earth's body are somehow calling us back again. And remember, he wrote this in the 90s, uh, but the Dragon Project work was done, I think it was in the 80s. He says these, these places have a special quality and it was recognised by the former inhabitants of the Earth, by our ancestors. And locked into these sites is information about the planet, information about ourselves, and they're full of this ancient wisdom. And we've revealed this on previous shows, especially with the work of the late John Michel, talking about the units of measurement that hmm. incorporate the diameter of the Earth, yeah, know, the, the, the circumference, the distance between the Earth and the Moon, and all these insane cosmic relationships encoded into the measurements of these sites. He says, this effect we get, there's something about these sites that, it's interesting, he gets metaphysical, metaphysical here. He says, something's communicated by the earth to us through these sites. He says there's some kind of mental osmosis that takes place. And this is part of the broader argument from his book that we're communing with Gaia in some way or that can potentially be done. But what is he saying? That things like technical information is being conveyed by Gaia. He says intellectual information, aesthetic information. So that's technical. Intuitive inf information can be instant or can occur more subtly long after the visit. So he says... right. You might have the call of the stones. You might go and visit this place. And then it imbues and, you with something. That John Michel said that tourism was the modern pilgrimage. It's the modern version of a pilgrimage. Like yeah. You jump on a plane. Like I went to Cambodia years ago and went to the temples there. And looking back on that, that was like a pilgrimage to this incredible, special, powerful place. That We went there because we wanted to see old, incredible things that were built by you know the ancestors of humankind. Only to be attacked by monkeys. <laughs> and yes, I was attacked by monkeys. <laughs> and on the second day, my pants ripped and I had to wear those stupid pantaloons for the rest of the trip. <laughs> so it was a bit of a disaster. But it, he's right. It, it was a pilgrimage of sorts. And there's this magnetic pull. And you might visit one of these places and then weeks later, months later, something emerges in your mind from the experience. Again, he goes into more detail on the actual mechanics of this later on. But that's his general gist, this idea that there is this infusion of some kind of knowledge through the, these sites. The planet has a way of connecting with us, he says, and it's a real, tangible, measurable phenomenon. So eventually, again, this great summary of the Dragon Project uh, was set up in Britain in 1977. Uh, Paul Devereux was the founding director. His colleague, John Steele, was a founding coordinator. The project used two types of investigation. Number one, psychic archaeology. So they used sensitives, uh, dowsers, psychics. I, I love that. I think that's fantastic, especially when it's paired with physical measurement. It's very cool. Yeah. Actual physical measurement using scientific devices, uh, engineers coming in, electronic experts. Uh, I think pairing the two is fantastic. He said, uh, again, this is a, a summary of what they found, but there's some pretty good stories thrown in here for good measure. So the first thing he mentions is this zoologist, when they first started the project, 
he wasn't involved in the project. He was just doing his own thing. He was a bat researcher and he was somewhere north of, of Oxford and he had this wideband ultrasound receiver. It was basically his bat detector, you know, because bats emit ultrasound. Mm. You can't hear it with your physically as you've got to use the device. So it was early one morning and his bat detector just starts going beep, 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 which means there's bats around. So he's like, on. where are the bats? There's no bats anywhere. It's morning, you know, bats are nocturnal. The skies are clear. Where is this ultrasound coming from? So it, it, he starts following the beeps, like beep, 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 beep. <laughs> it, gets, it gets closer and closer. And on the property he was working on, there was this ancient stone circle, a series of stone circles. And as he's getting closer, beep, 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 he realizes there's this ultrasound, this bat signal coming from the stones. Does that happen? Like, does ultrasounds appear naturally in the environment somehow? Like, can wind cause that well, to happen? It appears naturally from animals that emit it. But how are stones? Well, that's what I'm asking. Like, is it a good question, Aaron? So this is the question that would be perfect for the Dragon Project. So he got in touch with Devereaux. He said, "Look, I've got this equipment." This ultrasound seems to be coming from the Rollwright Stones. Now, the Rollwright Stones is, again, this ancient site. Uh, it's located on the Oxfordshire and Warwickshire border in England. There's three main elements. There's the King's Men Stone Circle, the King's Stone, and the Whispering Knights. Maybe you want to Google image some pictures. We'll put them in the show notes. But, again, word for this got out. He, he got in touch with the Dragon Project. They started monitoring these sites in particular and other sites around Britain for ultrasound. Uh, they use control locations as well. And he said, over the years, a variety of wideband instruments started to pick up all these inexplicable signals. They were almost always around dawn when this zoologist picked up his bat signals. Uh, Round-the-clock uh, monitoring revealed very occasional isolated signals at other times. The signals were picked up at Rollright and a handful of other megalithic locations around Britain, but never at the control locations, never at the test locations. Right. So they'd ruled out some kind of random ultrasound that you'll find anywhere. They, um, they found that the peak effects were around February and March. There was less activity in autumn and virtually nothing during the summer months. And for several years, the source of the signals just couldn't be identified. Like, they would be in one part of the stone complex and they would go to that stone and think, this must be it. And then suddenly another stone would start emitting ultrasound. So is it almost like there's a motion detector or it's responding to their presence? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, they could just never find a particular stone that was the culprit. It would just randomly the come from any of them. Mm. Sometimes they would be detectable in only very small areas a few yards across, while at other rare times the... The countryside or the area around the stone circle, you would be able to pick up the ultrasound, which was how the zoologist detected it. Accidental production of ultrasound was ruled out. So things like, I don't know, like modern fabrics rubbing together yep. might somehow produce a high-pitched frequency. That was ruled out. Keys jangling was ruled out. Faulty equipment was ruled out. Stray radio signals was another suggestion, probably a good one. And they did this really laborious test to try and figure out if that was what was going on. Uh, Obviously, it's not. It's not. Normal radio interference was shown not to be the cause. Then in January of 1987, there was a particular part of a single stone within the Rollwright Circle that was emitting a signal that affected the equipment. Now, this was the first time they were like, all right, it's definitely this stone. <laughs> like, it's absolutely this stone. 
and the stone was spitting out this 37 kilohertz signal. Now, I've got a test tone here for you, just like a sine wave, so you, you know what 37 kilohertz sounds like. Some of you might not be able to hear this because of your equipment, or you might just be too old that your ears can't hear 37 kilohertz anymore. Oh, is this like the lower limit of human hearing or the upper, upper limit? Upper limit, right. Uh, if you're a young listener, this might sound like a laser beam blasting your eardrums. <laughs> Let's take a listen. Can you hear that? I can just I can't hear, hear anything. I can just hear it. My headphones are way down. Uh, I think you're going down. Is it actually playing? It's playing. You can't hear that? See, the teenagers listening are like, ah, ah, ah. And nope. old men like you are like, I can't do no, anything. But my headphones are almost at zero. Look how far down my headphones Hello, are. Benjamin, there's something wrong with yeah, your radio you're program. you're so loud that I have to turn the headphones there's down. There's so much silence. You seriously can't hear that right now? Just listen very closely. Can you hear it? Good, because I'm not actually playing anything oh, right you now. Bastard. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. Oh, my hearing is okay, excellent. Now, now I'll definitely play it. You ready? Well, wait. Let me turn my headphones back down. I'm going to go deaf. You ready? Yeah. Turn them up. Okay, go. You can't hear that? Well, my head, I don't know where my headphones are. <laughs> no need to reach over and change All them. right, that's enough of that. We've established that you're going deaf. Uh, <laughs> so 37 kilos. Now I can't hear you. <laughs> Fix your headphones. Which one is even mine? I've got a volume controller here. Which is mine? There you go. Yeah, you just, I'll just keep going. Yeah, you do you what you're doing. I'll just figure it out over it. there. <laughs> <laughs> Audio engineer over here. <laughs> so that that was bizarre. This 37 kilohertz beaming out of this one rock. But you played it earlier today and I heard it. Like when we played it outside on the okay, laptop Aaron, computers. Sometimes <laughs> as you get older, there's these little hairs that fall out of your eardrum. It's all right. It's a natural process. <laughs> I still can't hear you. So uh, later on, speaking of radio signals, they started to pick up these strange radio signals as well. Also at Bronze Age Cairns in the Wicklow Hills in Ireland, they brought in these specialised radio receivers and started to pick up isolated patches of signals at ground level within stone circles. Right. Like if you went up a few feet, nope. You go down, there's like this weird radio signal coming through. It wasn't like normal radio chatter, and it didn't ad adhere to the normal patterns of radio propagation. Now, they brought in a uh, electronics consultant with the project. Uh, his name was Rodney Hale. He was convinced the signals were man-made, but the behavior of them was very, very strange. It's something he couldn't understand. So there was something about the stone monuments that was almost sucking in a radio signal and, and storing it somehow and manipulating it, doing something strange to it. Interesting. Um, and they could never identify the direct place that this was happening. It was always all over the shop. Can you stop I adjusting still, your headphones? <laughs> they're down too far now. <laughs> My God. So uh, other anomalies have been noted during the Dragon Project research. They've done infrared photography. Uh, and on two occasions in 1979, uh, on top of the, the Kingstone which is in the Rollwright circle, there's this weird glow. There's this weird cloud that's just hovering over the site. And again, this can't be seen with the naked eye. It requires an infrared camera to catch this. The following year, another photographer using infrared film catched the image of this curious cloud. Again, hovering 4.5 metres above the ground between the Kingstone and the circle. Now... They couldn't figure out what this was, but they've seen it over other sites. There's another uh, dolmen called Kitt's Cotty House in Kent. 
similar thing. A photographer uh, caught this strange cloud effect hovering over the site. I find this incredibly bizarre that this like cloud phenomenon that we just can't see with our naked eye, some kind of energy blob just hovering there. Well, it also makes you wonder like what is out there that we just, we don't see. You know, when you go across, you know, sacred locations, is there something similar hanging across that? Is, you know, why can't we see this stuff? Do you sometimes walk through it and you're just like, (laughs) (laughs) and that's why you get a cough, you start sneezing. I don't think so. I'm going to go with no Is that where allergies come from? These weird infrared clouds floating around? No. It's not actually from pollen. It's That's part of big pollen. (laughs) It's the big antihistamine pharma It's a racket, Ben, yeah. (laughs) And and then there's sounds coming from them, lights coming from the ground. Uh, In the sites, alarm clocks, watches would malfunction. Uh, Sometimes animals, like dogs, pets they had with them, would refuse to go into the sites, but at other times they were fine. And then there was the mind mirrors. Sounds pretty cool, mm-hmm. uh, but it's very nerdy. Nerdy. This is from the late Maxwell Cade. He, he was a researcher that came on site at Rollwright for the Dragon Project. He was well known for his pioneering work with biofeedback techniques, and he developed this instrument called the Mind Mirror. So it was this really sophisticated device, and they used uh, electrodes to attach to the, to the skull of the subject, and it would pick up brain rhythms from both sides of the brain simultaneously. And they, he would send in uh, dowsers and sensitives that were connected to the mind mirror, again, the electrodes on their scalps, and they were monitoring what was going on with their brains when they were going into the sites. Now, at the Rollwright Circle, Cade was able to make this observation that when the subjects went into the vicinity of the stones, immediately their, their deep theta and, and delta brain rhythms were triggered almost as if they had crossed a threshold, like it was this an invisible line that they crossed over and then boom, their brains would change. What are those waves associated with? Is it deep sleep or something? I think it's just a, like a meditation, yeah. you know, deeper, yeah. altered state of like consciousness. Like a relaxation. Uh, this, this, was, this is kind of amazing. Like you just have to be in the vicinity and later research was showing you could kind of step over one section and your brain ways would change and then you'd step back and then go back to normal. Yeah, I'm convinced that there are places around the world that might contribute to, I mean, everyone's responsible for their own behavior, but at the same time, I wonder if there are locations that cause people to become agitated and aggressive. Like that, this is a calming effect. I wonder if there's the opposite, depending if they walk into some type of uh, geological mm-hmm. effect or influence. Like there's a zone just hovering over your pillow at night. <laughs> You're somewhere like that. <laughs> turning you insane. Uh, that would explain a lot, actually. Um, unfortunately, Cade, the researcher, he died before the project could be concluded. So they didn't get enough data from that short time that he was working on the project, which I, th- I think is really unfortunate. Why would his colleagues not continue? They did. They did more work with uh, similar examples of brain activity, you know, crossing over lines with the stone. But, you know, it was all his his designs and he was really the drive behind the sure, project. So right. it kind of faded out. Yeah. Uh, and then there's also instances of human interaction during these sessions at Rollwright, they sent in a, a master dowser, for example, who was able to change the voltage in the tallest stone in the circle by laying his hands on the stone. Now, what's weird about this is this dowser, he was kind of a bit psychic as well, he claimed that there was an energy node in the stone. Now, the rest of the team are like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? And he says, no, there's an energy node right there. I can see it. 
<laughs> so in in with his psychic vision, he can see this like swirling button, <laughs> like some kind of weird uh, etheric technology that no one else can see. And he just goes boop and presses it, and the voltage, the polarity of the stone just flips. And they were measuring this, and he's like, oh. "I'll press it again, boop." So you watch, boop. But <laughs> why would why would it even bother to do that though? What would be the purpose of that? Like, why would switching the like if someone understood the what's the purpose of a button on a microwave? Are the stones microwaving popcorn <laughs> for Neolithic culture? Maybe. I mean, it's 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 a function. It's some kind of functionality. But the interesting thing is the idea that it's some kind of technology that requires uh, extrasensory abilities to operate and even to detect. Now, the scientists using their equipment can easily detect a change in voltage change. in yeah. the stone. Yeah. But you need this uh, robe-wearing hippie psychic guy <laughs> to be able to press the button because he's the only one that can see it. Uh, and interference from the equipment was ruled out. Uh, others that were present had no idea what he was doing. So, yeah, that's the question I was asking in my notes. Did ancient people have a stronger natural ability like this? Did more Probably, people yes. have this because they, they weren't distracted by the modern technology we have? Their innate abilities hadn't atrophied. Was this just something normal for them? But I would love to know what the purpose was. Maybe. And we're not going to know. It teleported you to the next stone circle. Yeah, maybe. Like we described before, and there's a big net that catches you at the end. <laughs> it doesn't fire you out of a cannon. <laughs> yeah, it just propels you along a ley line. And, and then there's a great story uh, late at night. One of the researchers decided to stay the night in the Rollright Stones. Not a good idea. Well, this mist comes over and he starts seeing dark figures moving amongst the mist and they're kind of bobbing down in the ground and getting up again. He's like, what is going on? And he's terrified. But he builds up his courage and he makes his way over into the field outside the stones and he starts to approach these black silhouettes moving in the darkness. It's pygmies, isn't it? Well, he gets closer and he realises it's soldiers on a training exercise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I knew and they're like, what that. are you doing here? And he's like, like what, what are, are you doing, doing here? Yeah. Uh, and the amazing thing about these stones, again, the folklore is kind of, kind of fantastic. Like the Whispering Knights Dolmen, it gets this name because it was always said that the stones were warriors, ancient warriors, knights that had been, you know, bewitched and turned to stone, but they could still communicate with you. And as recently as the 19th century, these stones were used by young women as oracles. So if they had some deep question of, does he love me? Does he love me not? For example, they would go up to the stones and and hold their ears against the stones. Are the stones just basically ancient love testers? Is that what you're pressing <laughs> the button? Is that what it's all for? Well, they, the idea is that if they were sincere enough and, you know, if they, they were pious in their, um, you know, in their request for knowledge. In their character. The, yeah, their stone would speak to them. The stone would give them answers to their questions. And Devereux points out, there actually might be something to this. Like, this is a crazy folklore tale. But well, on, folklore is formed from something, don't they? On the 1st of March, 1984, people that were involved in the Dragon Project that were doing round-the-clock monitoring at this site with the Whispering Knights started to hear ticking sounds coming from the rocks like mechanical ticking sounds. When they got closer, it stopped. And then another part of the circle, there would be this weird hum. So they directly heard this audible activity coming from the stones. And there's so many stories of this throughout not only other studies that have been done before the Dragon Project, but just in general tales from the locals 
of, oh, yeah, you go out there in the morning, the stones will talk to you or you'll just hear this weird clock sound. Uh, some other lady was talking about a different location. She said she heard like a, a tingling sound, like a bell ringing from the stones. Uh, and then we get into some of the light phenomenon in, in the region as well. Is it actually audible or is it something that's being put into people's heads? Well, that's that's a good question. But do you have to say no because Devereaux's team is recording it on equipment? They've got Do tapes. we have the recordings anywhere? I couldn't find any. Uh, it, it would have been good, actually. I should have gone to the uh, the website and saw if they, they had any. I didn't I'll even think of looking. Maybe have a look. Um, but they do have tapes of some of this audible activity. But look, again, the example of, of going through the local stories, there's a great one from uh, Mrs. L. Chapman recorded in the book The Lay Hunter in 1982. Uh, Chapman said in 1919 she was sent to work in uh, Warwickshire and, and lodged at Long Compton near the Rollwright Stones. She said, look, I was curious about the stones and I wanted to go and inspect them, but my landlady was afraid to go as lights had been seen there and there were tales of people losing their memory after touching the stones. Now, she thinks... Uh, like sucking their memory out of them? She thinks, oh, uh, this is just some kind of silly village gossip. So she goes by herself. And Did one, she forget why she went there? Well, one evening she went to one of the group of the Whispering Night Stones and she said, I went one evening after work and was fingering one of the group of the Whispering Nights when my hand and arm began to tingle badly and I felt as though I was being pushed away. <laughs> it's like, that's an interesting way to word it. <laughs> that you just Probably didn't enjoy being fingered. To, to uh, finger, a finger a bunch of knights. <laughs> that was a Freudian slip there. <laughs> the tingling in my hand and arm lasted throughout the night and the next day. So there's some kind of weird electric shock, like she's gotten a tetanus shot or something and her arm's aching for up to a day afterwards really bizarre and there's a ton of these stories of people touching the stones and getting zapped i can't find any audio for them so perhaps they haven't put it online but it would be cool to hear that well definitely put the site the dragon yeah, project trust in the show notes because i forgot to put it in my notes here um now he says no dragon project monitors staying overnight at the circle have reported light phenomena but he said a friend of the coordinator john Steele, the you know the co-founder stayed at the circle for a two-week period in august of 1980 he claimed that for several nights when there was no moon, he saw a pool of diffuse white liquid coming out of the ground and it actually rose up over the stones and then kind of tapered off. He was adamant that the stone circle itself was generating the light. What is, what is going on Well, here? I mean, if there's a power source in the middle of it, which is described by a guy that can see it, I mean, maybe that's what's allowing it to light up. Is there a button that someone pressed? Yeah, someone was there went a against the button by accident. Uh, and Devereaux has this great story of his uh, personal visit out to the site. This, this occurred in uh, the 3rd of July, 1971. And it, he says it speaks to the, the ritual attraction that the circle has to the yes. locals. Mm -hmm. So he and his colleagues, they drove up to the circle. And at that time, it was open to the road and... Today, it's kind of cordoned off and, you know, like most things these days, there's a big fence around it. You can't get close to it. But back in the day, he, he, up to them. he rocks up to this circle and he says there's this man and woman half naked dancing inside it. <laughs> and he says a friend in our car, David, was a practicing, practicing Kabbalist. And he got out of the car and led us up to the circle. And he said as he entered the ring of stones, suddenly he turned on his heel with such suddenness... Paul said, I stopped dead in my tracks. 
The two dancers he could sense knew that something was up and scurried to the far side of the site, while his friend David, the Kabbalist, fixed his eyes on this mysterious third person who was sitting cross-legged against the tallest stone in the ring. And the two men locked into a battle of wills. Now, you can imagine that this beautiful morning in the countryside in England, you know, it kind of sounds like this. The birds are chirping and your friend David has just gone into the circle. And you're like, you're right, David. What's going on, mate? You're right. And in David's mind, as his eyes are locked onto this mysterious character, it's like... <laughs> Davey, you're right, mate. You want me to get some sandwiches from the car? There'd be a sheep in there somewhere. And David's just like... <laughs> like a battle to the death. Anyone could explode in red mist. You're right, mate. You want me to get a glass of water? You're right, you look like you're straining a bit. Do you want us to come back later? <laughs> Davey! Davey, mate, no, I'll just, go, I'll just go to the car and wait. You seem to be into something, mate. How does he get out? Eventually, the, the guy he was having this crazy Kabbalist battle of wills with eventually stood up like he was defeated and he kind of stumbled a bit. <laughs> He was like, oh, <laughs> and he walked out of the circle. And then the two dancers must have been like his muses or something and followed him and they kind of walked off in the forest. It was just the weirdest Bizarre. thing. I was like, what That's the hell's strange. going on? He asked his friend, what was that? His friend's like, just a Kabbalist thing. You wouldn't understand. I, I wonder if these uh, black magic practitioners, if... If this happens a lot to them, like you're just at the park one day. Oh, it happens all the time. And all, of a, no all of a sudden, you're just in this battle of wills with this random person. You know, just this, all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> you see some grandma feeding, <laughs> feeding the pigeons and you look at her and she's like... <laughs> It would be exhausting. It would be exhausting, absolutely. Absolutely. and physically. Absolutely exhausting. Now, the, these guys left and Paul said, we returned to our car uh, after exploring the site. And they go to start their car. Car won't start. Was and it the Kabbalist? The Kabbalist is like, yeah, I kind of expected this would happen. Let's come back in about 20 minutes and it'll probably start. They come back in 20 minutes, car starts up instantly. And there's a bunch of stories like this where there's weird breakdowns near the stones, where yeah. cars' headlights fail, batteries drain. It obviously has an influence on electrical items yeah. somehow. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's also biosensing experiments using magnetically sensitive brine shrimp. You know, this is the level of um, scientific detail they go into. Obviously, there's no amazing stories about the brine shrimp. Well, they other, can't tell you. Other than that they reacted because they're incredibly sensitive to magnetics. So when they were taken into, you know, inside stones, they were responding as if they were responding to a magnetic field. Uh, in 1983, a report of a, a magnetic study of the Rollwright Circle was published in New Scientist by uh, an independent researcher, Charles Brooker. Brooker reported finding unusual configurations of magnetism within the ring of stones. He also discovered that two of the stones on the western side of the circle were pulsing. So the Dragon Project wanted to follow up on this and they actually got hold of a, a magnet, magnetometer and uh, they got it from Birkbeck College in London. 
and they went out there in July of 1983. And yeah, they found this stone that was just like it had a heartbeat. It was just thumping on and off. Or a pulsing generator. No, that's the wrong sound effect. I thought I had a heartbeat here somewhere. I don't I don't know if I do. <laughs> that's yeah. That's kind of bad. <laughs> you use you use like a stethoscope to listen to the stone and it's like <laughs> No, but they detected one of these stones was just had this magnetic pulse to it and it was like this natural heartbeat to the stone. Then in 1987 there was a bit of a twist. A local newspaper story broke in Wales about a woman who had experienced this strange sensation while she was driven close to the jagged peak of Khan Ingli in the Priscilla Hills. Now, they don't, she doesn't describe exactly what she felt, but it's almost like they were just driving past in a car and, you know, she was immediately like, oh, what is that? What is that? Like this horrible, strange sensation of some energy overtaking her. Now, the journalist that wrote about this story followed up and he ended up going to Khan Ingli, who went to this peak, and he took a compass up there, and his compass is just flying around, going crazy. He ended up contacting Devereaux, feeling that an earth mystery had been encountered. Now, they found further compass deflections at different points around the peak, and this is where he starts talking about the magnetic rocks that are used at this megalithic site. Um, you know, obviously, they have... This isn't really paranormal. They have iron-bearing minerals... And they are basically the uh, magnetize, magnetization, he says, that's induced in them by the Earth's magnetic field because the, the rocks were formed hundreds of millions of years ago. Yeah, of course. It's like an imprint of the geomagnetic fields that were prevalent at that at time, time period. Yeah. So this is how scientists are able to tell that, well, geologists specifically have been able to tell that our poles have shifted so many times in the past yep. because of the, you know, the history well, of the imprint on these rocks. Yeah, it's like the sediment layers I was talking about before. It's just the same, but magnetically. Yeah. So he says, obviously, the effect's not paranormal. There's just no, weird magnetic rocks. Yeah. But the fact that they used magnetic rocks for this ancient site is pretty intriguing. And... There's uh, the story of a man in the 6th century, this holy man. His name was St. Uh, Brynach. And he used to go up to this peak and pray and fast and speak with entities. This was his whole thing. He would go out there and speak with angels. And what would they say? Well, I have no idea. <laughs> it's not written here. And I'm not sure if he wrote it down in, in the 6th century and if it would have survived today. But it's just a story. Uh, and that's how the name Khan Ingli, which means peak of angels. Mm. But again, it taps into this idea that there's some function of the magnetic effect or something about the site, something about the stone, something about the peak that puts him into this altered state of consciousness so he can reach beyond into another dimension and speak with something higher. And this woman today, thousands of a thousand years later, has the same reaction to the hill. Uh, apparently sounds have been heard on the hill slopes, weird kind of sounds, and a, a group of reliable witnesses, he said, have observed a rainbow-like effect hovering over the peak at night, which is pretty weird. So Devereaux, once he heard this story, he's like, oh, the compass is acting strangely. Now I've got to do a compass check on all these sites throughout Britain. Now, this was laborious. It's a big <laughs> job, yeah. Huge job, right? Most of the sites use magnetic stones. You're probably not surprised by that, but what is interesting about it is 
usually there'll be one stone at the site that is very strongly ha- has this magnetic effect, but it's it's used as in a position in the circle as some kind of cardinal position. It's a special stone, right? It's the stone that will mark the solstice, for example, like that's where the light will hit. And that stone just happens to be very, very magnetic. Or it's an outlier stone that's outside the main circle. All the other stones are normal. Then you've got this outlier stone that's incredibly magnetic. It's not random. It's not an accident. It sounds it's there almost like, for a reason. Yeah, it sounds almost like it's a machine. And then when he gets into the radioactivity, this was even more interesting than, than the magnetism. Thousands of Geiger counter and scintillometer readings, he says, have been taken as part of the Dragon Project. And there's all been all these sites throughout locations, not only in Britain, but also the US and the Middle East. Again, but they always go back to the Rollwright stones. And on odd occasions, flares of readings up to three times above background levels have been registered within the ring of stones. Uh, in America, Dragon Project volunteers uh, looked at this this stone circle that it was always said that it aligned with the moon during this particular period called the the Metonic Cycle. So the team there in the US they went out there and um, they they tried to time their readings with this moonset period and they were there for 12 hours continuously taking readings taking readings taking readings this is all like radiation and at one point in the late afternoon the readings within inside the circle just went just surged like some power came through something turned on in that circle and they're like whoa what is going on the environment readings were just constant the same the whole night through Something happened in that circle, like it again, like it was switched on. A second finding was that the precise moment of moonset at nine o'clock in the evening, the level of radiation readings in the environment edged above the stone circle for the only time in the whole period they were there. It, he said it seems like there was some kind of geophysics taking place, which we are a long way from understanding. Yeah, but the ancient people understood it perfectly. Something is happening not only within the stone circle, but then to the environment around it as well. Like it's activating the countryside. And then there's this really curious phenomenon because one of the questions he had is, okay, we can understand how ancient people, even if we accept that they were very, very advanced, we can understand how they could detect magnetic stones, right? They could use a lodestone or there's a bunch of different ways they could detect magnetism. Uh, You know, magnetism was used in ancient Egypt quite a bit, for example. But how would they detect radiation levels in stones? Because many of the stones that are used have either high natural radiation emitting from them or the combination of the stones create something. How would they detect that? How would they know? Well, they must have had some... Geiger counters. Yeah, they must have had, but I'm saying natural is the wrong word but they must have had something that would have permitted them to detect it, surely. Well, this this phenomenon came to their attention uh, purely by accident. They were measuring radiation levels at some of the features in, in Cornwall, and uh, there was also descriptions of light phenomena within them. There's this, uh, this story from archaeologist Dr. John Barnett. I, I love this story. This was July of 1979, and Barnett was on this weeks of field work. He was studying the Cornish ceremonial monuments. And at the end of this long day's work, he and his photographer, Brian Larkman, 
they camped alongside this stone called, the, I'm going to slaughter the pronunciation, the Chun Chunquit Circle. After dinner, they went over to the dolmen and just looked around and just wanted to relax. And the dolmen being, you know, just like a single chamber, like a bunch of stones forming like a little house almost, right? And they're just sitting inside. He squeezes inside the stone structure. He's sitting there in the darkness. And he suddenly becomes aware that on the underside of the capstone, just above where his head is, there's these strange bursts of light from these filaments that are almost inside the rock, like fibre optics going through the stone. I went to one of Devereaux's other books and pulled the direct quote from this guy. He said, just at the point of dawn, as the light was beginning to break, I saw thin spiral filaments swirling in front of my eyes and around the main capping lintels, the, the top stones of the passage. He said, at first I thought it was like a retinal image, like, you know, floaters on the yeah. eyeball, like something was wrong with his sight. But he said, I had never experienced such spiralic phenomena before. And they seemed to be moving independently of my eye movements. They most closely resembled the whirls on fingertips, but lots of them interlaced and moving gently. Then he said, I saw hundreds of tiny pricks of light, like stars, again, moving gently and with the occasional streak. So it'd be like, it's like a kid's bedroom when you put those glow stars on yeah, the yeah. ceiling. But occasionally he would see a shooting star. Something would move. And he's just watching this kind of bamboozled. He said, look, I, I checked that this was not some kind of self-produced effect because he said he would switch his gaze back to the, the light at the entrance and then back inside the, the chamber. And he did this several times and he's like, no, it's... It's there, it's like real. it's tangibly there. He said the whole passage appeared to be filled with what can best be described as a star soup which flowed in and around the stones. He said somehow I knew that what I was seeing was energy, which although subtle was clearly there. He said I suspect that the ability to see it depends on certain fine tuning of perception which is probably available to anyone. So but when he's saying fine-shooting of perception, is he implying something um, paranormal, something? No, I, I think he's just saying because they had spent, you know, they'd spent a whole week out there. Right, and it's a trained eye. their eyes were starting to adjust to the darkness as well, yep. right? So they weren't being exposed to too much artificial light. Uh, you know, his eyes were really sensitive to the dark and it was just that perfect time where suddenly, and maybe it's, Again, the timing of something energetically going on within the stone. Of course. Mm. It really does sound bizarre. It was later discovered that in June of 1988, also in totally dark conditions, another scientist, this was a university research psychologist, Joe May, witnessed what seemed to be the same thing. This time he was inside the Bole Fugu, and Fugu is like a kind of traditional name for like a dolmen or inside these structures. Inside this subterranean granite chamber, uh, May went inside and clearly observed thin spiralic filaments swirling around the capping lintels of the passage. It's the same location, the same effect. But what it sounds like they're describing is fibre optics. And I know that they're ancient sites and it's really horrible, but surely they could take a very small sample of the rock. Wouldn't that reveal something? Why do you think it's fibre optics? Just because of the light, that's the only thing I can think of. Like the, the way that the light is moving, uh, how small it is, how insignificant it is, but then um, it just sounds like it's fiber optics. Yeah, but it, it might not be something that you can tangibly 
physically take. Mm. You know, it's it's like if the if the energy is moving along some unseen pathway. Right. Yeah. Good point. It's yeah. like how do you how do you how do you go and chip off some radiation? Yeah, you don't. Well, how do you chip off some infrared? Like, yeah. No, you don't. It, no, that's a good point. Yeah. So I'm. That's a good point because I'm just applying. You know what is in the context of what our science would be. Yeah. So that yeah, like, yeah obviously you're not going to find fiber optic fibers it, inside it. It's something. It's something else. And, and it's interesting because he's he's describing these spiral swirls. How often do we see those painted on these? Oh, everywhere. Megalithic objects. Yes. Yeah. Yep. It's like the ancient people saw this and just were like, okay, let's here it is. Let's paint it there. Yep. Um. Now he again made checks to make sure he wasn't going crazy. It wasn't an optical illusion. And eventually he said his eyes started to attune to it and he could see it even clearer. He said the lights were subtle, but they were clearly there. It was an objective phenomenon. He said they closely resembled the whirls on the fingertips, but there were lots of them interlaced and all moving gently. It's some kind of flowing energy. It's, it's not just static. It's, it's doing something. He also noted that there were hundreds of tiny pricks of light like stars, again, moving gently with the occasional streak as if it was a shooting star. The identical thing that the first uh, scientists witnessed. So it just so happened that these two sites had the highest radiation readings of any granite enclosure that was monitored in Cornwall during the 1988 session, 1988 session, sorry. There's something about the radiation that's connected with this activity, perhaps. And speaking of granite, you know, he talks about uh, the Great Pyramid at Giza, the granite blocks that are used there. Questions arise about the true purpose of that structure. Is it the same kind of thing? Was it built at a time when this technology was in its golden age? And then as society digressed, you know, we just did the best we could. We still Probably. had the fundamental knowledge, but we could just we couldn't build such grand structures. We just had to hulk a bunch of stones together. Well, it's the same thing as what we heard about the pyramids. Is that the pyramids weren't built by the Egyptians; they mm. were built by a previous race or a previous civilization. And whoever's come along afterwards is like, well, we'll just try and you know maintain them as best as we can. But yeah. we don't know how to utilize that technology. And then Winnie's other books. I was going through some of the light activity. It's pretty bizarre. Like, there was one from West Yorkshire on Ilkley Moor, the Twelve Apostles, and dozens of cases have been seen by researchers in the 1970s and 1980s of lights, light balls, flashing lights, weird columns like shooting into the sky. Um, there was a typical example of the cow and calf rocks that are these ancient structures. Three women on the outskirts of the the rocks saw two balls of light falling out of the sky and landing behind the rocks. But at one point on their descent, they just stopped and hovered and then just went sucked into the ground. Made no noise. Just There's definitely something going on with these things. It's like some residual um, effect. Yeah. And there was a a team of um, army guys out on an exercise in 1976 and they saw this bright white object at night just come, you know, traveling along like a UFO, but it just looks like a giant white orb, just stops over the stone circle, just hovers there and then flies off. Like, what is going on? There's another one from Balden Moor in West Yorkshire where a Miss AR and one of her sons in July of 1984 saw a red elongated object moving across her field of vision. Uh, her and her son saw this, and as they looked closer, they realized, oh, hang on, it, it's like five objects. It's like a cluster of glowing red balls. 
you know, classic UFO sighting, right? But as they watch, it kind of, it starts to get closer to the hill and follows the curve of this stone circle that's there. And it kind of flies off to the west and disappears. Now, the researcher that was looking into this, his name was um, Bennett. I don't know his first name, Paul Bennett. He went and looked at the geology maps and he noticed that the curve of the objects that they described was following the fault line. And the circle also follows the fault line. So this is where we start to perhaps understand that... They served a purpose. There's something about the geological nature of the earth and where these circles are that's connected to the strange light activity and perhaps all the other stuff as well. So could the light boat be uh, piezoelectric? Yeah, it's something like like that. Some kind of electric universe effect. Yeah, like subtle vibrations in the... the, um, Obviously in the, the rift are somehow... You know, or in the fault line, might somehow charge them. It's yeah, it's following it's following this natural curve of the stone circle, which also follows the curve, mm-hmm. as I said, of the the geological fault. Uh, a bunch of my favourite ones. There was a guy. Uh, this was in North Wales. There was a stone circle there. This chambered can, I should say, and he saw this. Pillar of fire shooting into the sky. Oh, like the cauldrons. Not yeah, not like a white light, soft light that the others have seen, literally fire. Like it is a giant yeah, bonfire like a shooting into the sky. That's what the cauldrons are. He said it was two feet wide, three yards in height. He said suddenly another small fire began by its side two yards distant and increased rapidly until it assumed the same size and form. And he's just looking at these arms of fire shooting into the sky. And then he starts to see smoke and he's like, what the hell's going on? And then like in an instant, it just vanished. It just disappeared. Uh, He says, it was a very wonderful fire. Like it just was, as if in saying, I wasn't just looking at a bonfire. There was something magical about it. And you're right, it really does sound like the legends of- Very much so. The spheres in in Tunguska. Um, And then there's one from Shropshire uh, of of the fairy stone there. That's its traditional name for it. It's just this large out of place stone. And there's always been these legends of fairy lights surrounding it. But there was this story that the researcher Jonathan Mullard came across by an elderly woman who lived locally. She came up to spoke to him to speak to him, and she's like, "Yes, my grandfather had a story of going past the stone." She sits him down, they have a cup of tea, and she tells him the story. One evening, her grandfather was coming home from work, and he would always cut across the field where this stone was. Except this evening, he he he's about to turn and take his usual shortcut. And the whole area around the stone is full of these tiny little, like, squash ball-sized glowing balls of light. And they're all bobbing up and down, you know, floating around, just hovering about a foot off the ground. And he's like, I don't want to go around. <laughs> he's the, it's like, that's going to take an extra 20 minutes. He just walks... And I blame him. He walks straight through this field of little glowing balls. And he says, as he's walking through the field, any of them that he happened to brush up against or touch, they were sticking to his pants. (laughs) And he would like brush them off and he'd keep walking and there'd be more of them like stuck to his clothes and stuck to his pants. And he just briskly brushed them off. Eventually he gets home and remember it's dark. He's walking home in the dark. He eventually gets home. And according to the woman, he says, she says like my, my great, my grandmother, his wife was like, what the hell happened to your pants? Are they all burnt or something? He turned up and he's 
everything was scorched. Yeah. Like, these trendy holes everywhere. Like, <laughs> just hundreds of holes where these weird lights had stuck to his jeans. Now, this woman kept the trousers and she's like, hang on a second, I think I've got them. And she comes out, she shows the researcher, she's got these old jeans. That have burn marks all through them. all through them. Wow. These weird lights around the fairy circle. Weird. And, and there's a ton of stories he talks about the healing radiation, the idea that, you know, around the turn of the centuries, like Americans still use radioactive caves in Colorado for healing. Yeah. Right? It's the same as Europeans visiting spas. Like some of these famous spas that are known to have healing properties. They actually have not, when I say high levels of radiation, we're talking like yeah. natural radiation, yeah. not Hiroshima or something. Yeah. They, it's they not do, knocking electrons off your DNA. No, they do have higher levels of natural radiation coming from these locations. So there is, you know, a, a history of that higher natural radiation for some people having a healing effect. He says that it might be a, a case of like a homeopathic dose where you just have a little tiny drop of low-level radiation yeah. and it acts as a healing agent. But also uh, natural radiation seems to influence consciousness as well. And this is where they had this really weird case where they um, they had this stone circle they were investigating in the UK and they were checking for radiation and just by chance they detected radiation but radiation was coming from the road that ran like right next to the circle it was like you know five ten meters away Had right the road been made from crushed up megalithic sites well that's what they thought they thought okay there must be something in the pebbles of the road that is radioactive or something yep. like an old uranium deposit under there or something so they started to detect it and they did all this work with radiation detectors on the surface of this road. And it's just like a, it's like a road that cars drive on, right? It's not fully paved. It's not fully sealed, but it's like a, you know, pebble road. And they note that, you know, other locations around the world, like other megalithic sites have high radiation, um, even Tibetan monasteries. Some of the Tibetan monasteries are built on sites that have higher natural radiation. The Serpent Mound in Ohio much higher levels of natural radiation. Do they have any thoughts as to why? Well, it's usually uh, uranium or... No, no, but like what they think the purpose would have been, is it just simply for like the healing? Well, I mean, the ancient, you know, it's probably good feng shui. Like yeah. the ancient geomancer would say, this is the spot for the temple because of the chi or the energies or the five elements or whatever. Yeah. But from the empirical Western science perspective, oh, there's, there's uranium under there. That's that's why it's radiating. Um, so they were wondering what was going on. There was something about this circle. Was there uranium underneath? And that's why the circle was there. They held all these theories. But they eventually found, no, it's actually the material in the road. It was some material they'd used on the very bottom layer of the road that just happened to be highly radio, not highly radioactive, but, but higher, higher than the yeah, surroundings. But why this was, why this came to be a major part of their project was these strange anomalies that started to happen with people that were involved in studying the circle. But it wasn't weird stuff that was going on with the circle. It was weird stuff that was going on with the road. So the first incident took place with a surveyor who was working on the circle. And he tells this story of like one afternoon, um, he had you know finished his work and he was just sitting, walking across the road, walking back to his car and he saw this car driving towards him on the road, like this strange black car. 
Didn't pay much attention to it. He's like, a oh, car's coming. And two seconds later, he looks up, car's gone. Vanished. And we've had a bunch of these stories yeah. of phantom cars in the UK. And particularly in Britain, yeah. And he was like, did I suffer a time lapse? He said, it, it, it didn't disappear. I just looked up and it was gone. He said, the experience was so odd, I decided to keep it to myself until the end of the monitoring period. And that's when he, he told Devereaux about it. Now, Devereaux said, I was dumbfounded because I received a letter from someone else at the same place on the 6th of March, just a few days later. This witness was a scientist who was only slightly acquainted with the Dragon Project. They had asked for anonymity. And basically, they had dropped by to visit one of the monitors of the uh, Rollwright Circle session. And after the witness returned to his van, he said it was 1.45 p.m. He grabbed a bite of his sandwich. He was talking to another colleague. He suddenly saw this giant black dog past the passenger window from left to right. That's cool because obviously there's a lot of reports of large black dogs as well. He said, look, I saw it, real, all the detail, like it was dark grey. He said, I saw all the hair. Um, I didn't see its head because it moved across the front of the van. But the two men opened the door and they're like, where is this giant dog? They looked out, nothing to be seen. They searched the area. There's no sign of this creature. Now, when Devereaux interviewed him, because of the height of the van and where they saw the dog, the dog was four feet tall at the shoulder. That's a big dog. That's a big-ass black dog. Yeah. That's huge. And yes, you're right to point out the history of black dog sightings in the UK. This is well, all phantom animals. on this radioactive road that isn't an ancient site. It just happens to be next to Stone Circle, but the radioactivity comes from the base layer of the road. And then there was a third case. This happened in October on the same length of road. She was observing the work of two dowsers from the British Society of Dowsers. Um, she, she said she basically glanced down the road. Like nothing had been coming behind her on the road. She looks up. She sees an old gypsy caravan from like 300 years ago, <laughs> like with donkeys and, you know, horses going down the road with gypsies playing violins on the back of it. And she's like, what the hell? That's out of place. She looks up again. It's gone. It's like um, time dilation or distortions. Well, every single case of those three, you could say was some kind of time slip. Like the first Absolutely. one of seeing yeah. a car disappear. You know, the, the second one of um, seeing this dog. Maybe this is some ancient dog from the past. And the gypsy caravan, there were pl plenty of gypsy caravans hundreds of years ago going along these roads. Very, very weird. Did they throw a spectral baby at her? As I yeah, they did. Yeah. They they cast a spell on her and stole her money, <laughs> stole her camera. <laughs> um, yeah, these weird time slips. But what Devereaux starts to ask is if there's something about the radiation in these sites that's triggering altered states, that's sending people yeah. into other dimensions of time and space. Well, that's what I was thinking. It may not even be a uh, time slip of an actual physical time slip. It's that it's triggering something inside the mind. And he's like, well, how, how would you even get stories like this? Like getting anecdotes, you know, it's not like ghost stories. It's virtually impossible. How many people are spending nights in ancient Khans yeah, and cute. dolmens? But he says there is still a couple of stories around. Like there was one woman who, again, wanted to stay anonymous, but she spent time alone in one of the dolmens at night. She said, as I stood there in the dark, I started to feel strange. She said, my identity started to dissolve. Suddenly, it was no longer dark inside the dolmen. She said, I was suddenly standing in daylight away from a church 
watching a wedding party come out of the church. She said the bridegroom and guests were, were all there. I couldn't see the faces clearly, but it was like watching a video in terms of the clarity, like it was a little bit fuzzy, like watching an old VHS tape. Mm. She said, I remember being distracted and feeling cold and then the vision disappeared and I, I came back. She said, this was so bizarre. It, it, it's, it's not like I dozed off and dreamt it. There was the clarity, the lucidity. It was different to a dream, she said. And it's almost like, again, like a past life vision, a time slip of sorts. It, it, this, it, this has always had a, a special place in these um, ancient megaliths, these strange stories that, that occasionally filter through. But maybe this is why the ancients utilize them. Like what these people are experiencing, even though it's novel and exciting to us, like maybe this is what they use to collect information or communicate. Well, Brian Larkman, who had that experience of seeing the weird filaments of light on the, the top of the stone, he said another weird thing happened to him where he saw th- this figure in one of the stones and he realized it was him. Hmm. It was in one of the upright stones and it was a weird doppelganger that was existing within the stone, like the stone had become suddenly a mirror into an an alternate dimension or a a parallel universe. Cloned him. So it's this idea of can you communicate with whatever that is? Well, I mean, to go a little bit further, is it access to, you know, the multiverse? Is it allowing him to see himself Mm. in other existences? The bottom line of the study for Devereaux is we need to try and comprehend the geomantic understanding of these traditional societies. Yes. They built these things. They knew how they worked. It's, this is not just random, you know, geomagnetic chaos that's happening. It's, it's a controlled, channeled, purposeful design that well, had so many some function, them. right? Had some function. It was all around the world. He says, we need to know the role of geophysics in these mind change activities. What is the radiation count, for example, in a shaman's cave? What geophysical characteristics has a place of power, a megalithic monument, a sacred peak, for example? He says, we may discover that altered states at sites with special properties allow entry to highly specialised orders of consciousness. And that's where he goes into, maybe we can talk with Mother Gaia. Mm. We'll have to go into that in that new book. Well, it's not a new book, but we'll have to pull that Well, you up. just finally tap in and she's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you're just like, oh, that was a mistake. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I want to talk to God. Yeah. She sounds like she's going through something. Well, it also could be that like no one's spoken to her in thousands of years. So she just wants to talk yeah. and talk and Oh, talk. God, she's got so many stories. She's like, did you see that thing that happened in 36,000 BC? Oh, my gosh, it was amazing. It's like that guy with... Um, Panpsychic abilities who could talk to rocks. Yeah. <laughs> and the rock was like, oh my God, I've been waiting to tell someone about what I saw. Yeah, and you want to be polite, but you kind of just edge away. Like, yep. It was in Australia. He back. saw two Aborigines fighting to the death, and the rock was so like pumped up about it. Like yeah. a thousand years later, he just had to tell this psychic what he saw. Yeah, that's that's the thing about rocks is they're they boring. They don't have great personalities. No, they don't. No. It's a general people with psychic abilities report that. So I'll, I'll link to a bunch of Devereaux stuff in the show notes, along with the 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 rolling. What was the name of the bloody rock again? <laughs> the 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 whispering knights and the uh, roll right stone circles. Well, the whispering knights is all part of that, isn't it? Yeah, it's part of a larger complex. Three, it's three major sites in this one large complex. I'll link to all that stuff if you want to check it out. If only we could travel and go to these places, I would 
Well, would love we to go. We should go, yes. I would love to go there. Uh, although, being Australian, it looks like we're not going anywhere to what, 2024 at the moment? We can't leave the country, can we? We can't legally leave the country, no. You need to apply for permission to leave the country. And even then, I don't know, it's going to be extenuating circumstances. So we are the descendants of prisoners. Yes. And we are, we are now prisoners, prisoners again, yes. That's a wrap for this show. Thank you so much for being on Plus. Make sure you check out the show notes and have a great weekend. We'll catch you on Tuesday for your next MU. See you then. Oh,